word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't cut up with this. This week, during this reading of The Blade itself, we do discuss suicide, as well as some other intense themes, as we always mention, but I feel in particular it's important to reference in this moment, given the context in the text. I would say in this book series more than most, expect more, not warnings exactly like this, but more specific warnings on the front end. There, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I I feel the need to say this again. We just did our devil's cut and talked for like 20 minutes, but I'm on the mend from being sick, so my voice is a little fucked. Uh, so I apologize if it's throwing you off. I know it's a lot deeper. Seemingly, uh, but it's also like raspy and gross, and I'm sorry. It's fine. I'm not thrown off at all. I'm not talking to you, by it. Crossland. Who are you? <laughs> How did Luke get on this call? I'm just kidding. It's not Luke. But yeah, I'm. You're you're totally fine. I don't even think you sound deeper. Yes, but at the very least, you don't sound terribly sick. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the plus. I've been I've um, been but we've, very much priming myself for this recording with this. If you guys haven't ever heard of throat spray, like sore throat spray, this shit's awesome. It like numbs it saved your throat. me when I was in Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It helped crossing out. I've got Dayquil that I took. I've got Sudafed that I took. I've got a big old wad of toilet paper for when my nose like overcomes that Sudafed. And I've got water and Boost. liquor and cocktail and beer in front of me. So. I'm all set, Crossland. I'm all set for today. I can't believe you don't do the tea. You know what I mean? Like you have all the other things, but you don't. You didn't go for the tea. I didn't, and I don't know why. Sure. I'm not. A, I'm not generally I'm just, a tea person, and I would mm. like to become one, but it's not. It's not a like habit yet. So that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I predominantly, unless I'm drinking it in the morning or like afternoon, I'm a non-caffeinated tea person because I've found. Since turning like 25, caffeine affects me very differently, especially as I pulled back and like went through the mushroom phase. And by that, I mean mushroom coffee phase and and whatnot. So non-caffeinated after after hours, but great for throat. Otherwise, all the talking we do would be a problem for me personally, my my voice box. Mm-hmm. So, OK, cool. With that, today is our third episode talking about the blade itself by Joe Abercrombie. We're beginning part two. And this week we're going we are reading or talking about what freedom looks like through sore thumb. With that, PJ, let's kick it off with that quick overview. Give us that rundown. OK, let's do it. After a tension filled meeting, Pharaoh and Yulwe set off as companions going through the pursuing army with magical disguises. Glockta presents his findings to the Open Council, proving the guilt of the Guild of Mercers. He leads a raid on the Mercers' headquarters to arrest their leader, who turns Glockta on to some possible alternate realities before committing suicide to, to avoid his arrest. These revelations are selectively brought up to Salt, who dismiss them as not worth the effort, as there is a more pressing assignment for Glockta, 
investigate the newcomers to the city and discredit the claim that it is Baez returned. Logan's world is rocked by the existence of such a vast city with so many people. Baez gives him some insight into the way that society works, and Logan takes it upon himself to explore the Agriant. An eater appears to him in the form of his deceased wife, who is then dispatched by Baez. Dizal witnesses Glockta's presentation, horrified by the visage of a man accused of treason, formerly connected to his father. With his newfound enthusiasm, he beats West in a practice duel before being chastised and discouraged from, the, from interacting with Artie. While on duty, he meets Logan and his magical companions. West loses some control and demands that Jazal not fuck his sister, then learns that he's going to be leading his own battalion in the war against the Northmen. How specific. Good, good work. Love it. Thanks, thanks for the quick, quick update on where we're at in the story. Just to give or give some pretense or thoughts, how'd you feel about the start of part two and where, we, where we've gone on the whole? This, I mean, we've laid down some groundwork. We've, we've made friends of our, like, perspectives, and then it got thrown to the wind. <laughs> We've got more people <laughs> to deal with. So, uh, one more person. One, I mean, one really, more person. But, a couple yeah. more important people. One more perspective. I'm liking that with the dogman perspective last time, and just I, I like that we don't have to. We're we're not locked into a certain set perspectives, but it feels like this is another primary perspective, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, Pharaoh is the oddest one of the bunch, right? Like, if we look at all of these different stories, her story is the most disconnected from all of them at this point. Like, everyone else, except for the Dogman, has sort of united in Adjua to some degree, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And so, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's disconnected. The Dogman's disconnected at the moment, but... Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone's in the same room. They're just all in the same place. So, what is a place? Anyway, as a part Crossland? of that, as a part of that, there's so much to talk about. But one of the things that I find the greatest about this week is again something that we haven't talked a whole lot about in like Pierce Brown's multi POV writing or anything like that because his characters haven't met up often. But we see every other character through multiple characters' eyes for the first time. So we get like our first full picture of Jazal, even we get our first full picture of west and bias a couple of different times and from different people's povs we get we get like all of these different like nuggets we get logan truly described for the first time mm -hmm. in a in a full way in in this section and i just think that that's it's excellent and it's so it goes against so many writing principles that are like make sure you describe your character right away and explain exactly who they are within the first 10 pages it's but, like no but what describing them from their own perspective in? is so different than describing them from somebody else's you know like uh, oh entirely yeah yeah I, I don't i don't think i don't know i'm not an expert on writing principles by any means of course obviously i am naive in writing principles i would say but that doesn't this doesn't feel like it truly breaks that i don't think yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. 
I don't think so in any regard. So, yeah, I just wanted to point to some of those things because it's like, here we are. Mm-hmm. Now we've made it. Here we okay, are. Now we're cool. Here. Yeah. Now we're finally getting images and, and things and other connection points. So, all right, with that, let's go into the actual breakdown itself here. We're going to start with the part two break, which leads off with a quote, life, the way it is really is a battle not between good and bad, but between bad and worse. My quote comes to us from Joseph Brodsky. I'm curious on your thoughts on on this quote on the whole. Well, Crossland, if if you want to hear our discussion in the Devil's Cut, I've been you, you can you can check out patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. But I have been watching a lot of nature documentaries lately. And uh, nature's not very nice. So I, I think this makes sense on a on a macro natural scale of it. You got to be selfish and and you got to be on the lookout and you got to not trust basically anybody because the, the world's out to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair, fair point. The world, I guess, quote, is out to fuck you, quote, PJ Heller. <laughs> but that's that's a good read. Uh, interestingly enough, this is one of the quotes in this series. And there are a couple that I don't have a whole lot of experience with. I don't have a whole lot of experience with Joseph Brodsky. He's a an American Russian poet. Okay. And generally well respected and well regarded, of course. I just haven't had like a wide, wide berth on a lot of the things that he's written. I so. am unfamiliar entirely. Hmm. I did know that he I I recognized the name and I knew that he was important, but I didn't know for what, for why, for chance, for how. But all right. Yeah. Curious. That said, PJ, this is also our last part of the novel, and we are halfway Ooh. through the book. So there's not another part break. <laughs> so this is this is it until the end. <laughs> hey, it, pretty even parts, I guess. <laughs> I mean, kind of. We've got this the first the first <laughs> the first part was two episodes, and the back part is four episodes. I mean so number of I pages. don't know if the math is even. It's not even I mean I'm saying at the end of this, we're at part, we're, we're halfway through. At the end of this, we're 25 pages past halfway through the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly. Which means that the first part is really a third and then okay. part two is really two thirds. <laughs> we're like 40% and 60%. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's a, not it's even a, breakdown. Not that know. that really matters. Fine. Okay. It's a little bit less than equal in the parts, but. <laughs> <laughs> got him. I got him, folks. Did you hear that? He broke. Yeah. All right. With that, let's get into what freedom looks like. PJ, what does freedom look like to you? An eagle, a, an American flag, <laughs> an electric guitar, <laughs> and a big old lifted pickup truck. <laughs> With two dangly bits on the end. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man, we're off to a strong start. This is good. There, there's like a strong start to a new part of a novel, and then there's a Joe Abercrombie part start in a novel, and this is just so strong. I don't. I can't think of any other word. This. There's so much strength in this. There's like weightlifting is done in this part. Clearly, you know, like a lot of weights were lifted and the heavy thing picked up and set down. No, but actually, he immediately shifts us into the story and this perspective of Pharaoh Maljin for this first full part. And we just begin there. And Pharaoh is complex and comes from a complex background. 
where wherein she's obviously escaped the empire. We get this like diatribe or conversation about the people that are accompanying her and sort of this idea of like the after of battle. There's just so much that comes almost immediately within two pages of Pharaoh's perspective. If this is typical of Joe in his writing style, consider me botting to his into his writing. It, I, I, I already was. Don't get me wrong, but like this is, yeah, I, I'm, I'm into this. Yeah, it's, it's a strong, it's a strong start, and you know, the man, the man never relents for the most part. I also feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about like the whole beginning of this, which is like the whole biting the earth thing and the commentary on the shovel and that like graves when fighting is over, you dig if you're still alive and how interestingly and strongly that contrasts Logan's perspective, either in the first actual chapter of the book or in the effective prologue, the end Um, in, in either way, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition between the two mm-hmm. uh, where Pharaoh is immediately taking care of those even though they were shitheads and fuckers and you know Logan misses his friends but doesn't have the time to look around or wait even as a as a moment of consideration for safety uh, for self-preservation yeah and I'd be curious how Pharaoh would, would react given like if she were in the same situation as Logan because she's she's digging to bury her the bodies that she has with her, but if there's no mm-hmm. bodies, would she react similar to to the way Logan would, or other way around? Would Logan respect the dead of his companions if they were there with him? Great, great point. And I guess yep. I'm yeah, that wasn't exactly the comparison that I was trying to draw out. But okay. you're definitely right. There, there is a question of do they similarly would they similarly do the same thing. I was thinking more about like the literal juxtaposition of the situations that they're in. Yeah. Uh, fair. Good point. You know. I do remember this is shifting gears a little bit and in, in going into the writing style again. But my first read through of this, it was I was driving. So I was listening to it. But I, I almost thought we were getting the perspective of the shovel. Hmm. And mm-hmm. like I, I liked the I liked that we didn't get the reveal of the character for a couple paragraphs, a couple. I, I don't think it was a couple of minutes. So it was probably a minute of reading. But yeah, I, I, w- I was really kind of enraptured by that perspective. Yeah, it it is. It is definitely focusing on the shovel, and the mm-hmm. only thing that we get is a couple of time and her yeah and that's but, but that new, could have applied but, to the shovel itself yeah absolutely it's i all, all that i'm saying is like it's it's clever in the way that it withholds all of this information for a very long time because it's almost like she's been depersonified in her own narration as well in her own perspective she doesn't think that she's a person which is to say something about her condition and her internal monologue compared to everyone else that we see as well mm-hmm yeah, she's pretty... Condition isn't the right word for that, but obviously her treatment and sort of her history. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, she, yeah. she's she's pretty broken down. Yeah. And then we get the introduction of Yulwe, another of the Magi of whom is just so cool. I mean, he's kind of like chill and relaxed in a weird way that's a little bit different. Maybe, I mean, maybe not, maybe that's too much, putting a little too much on him, but 
I think he's so well depicted and entirely different from the perspectives that we've come to know, as well as the Magi, the one singular Magi and the Apprentice that we know. But this conversation comes off as combative between the two right away, as Yulwe doesn't exactly back down and inverts the image that we have on Baez. He's more direct, despite being aloof. You know, she says, fuck the emperor. He replies with, I heard you already did, which is just so, like, much more confrontational than the way that Baez is. Direct. Yeah. Even. I'm going to nitpick a little bit. I think we do have one other magi. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yoru. Yeah, Yoru is definitely a magi. Interesting. We'll definitely, we should definitely talk a little bit more about this distinction. I'm thinking like the magi, the big magi, the 12, right? Like okay. He's, Baez is the first of the magi, right? And, you know an ancient mage of whom knows those things versus like Yoru is a younger apprentice that is sort of beyond past aspirational. Um, but is he like, he is a magi, but is he like one of the magi? You know what I mean? Okay. Gotcha. Sounds good. Does that make sense? It does. Those both, those questions are lingering even for Yulwe as well, I guess. Got it. But yeah, you're right. There, there, we, there are three people that we, know to be or assumed to be magi we haven't seen yoru do anything magical yet but yeah we have what did he do repeated the inner monologue of major west to him but is that magical absolutely that's magical what the fuck are you talking about do you think it's magical or do you think he's just very aware i don't think he's aware enough to know the exact wording of somebody's inner monologue I don't know. <laughs> it could be. Fair fair enough. There's there's a good question there. There's a good question there. Fair enough. But I mean, maybe maybe it was a good guess. <laughs> could have been. Who knows? Maybe it was a coincidence. Yeah. Because that's That'd be a great way to, to introduce a magical character. <laughs> With a coincidence. <laughs> With a coincidence that's not actually magical. <laughs> yeah. 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 But again, speculation to some degree, which is great on your part. But, you know, I think it's fair to assume he says he's a master. I believe that it's even repeated that like, oh, yeah, he he graduated. And I think Yoru is even mentioned in, in other places and perspectives as being like a graduate of Baez's. And at this point, we know that they have a relationship. That's his master. We yeah. assume he's a magus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we, we get a very combative and I think overly combative. I think combative is an understatement of, of how Pharaoh or Pharaoh Pharaoh Jesus. Pharaoh, 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 yep. Pharaoh, and uh, mm-hmm. Yulwe meet in the many multiple murder attempts <laughs> that, that Pharaoh <laughs> hatches upon Yulwe. I just mean even from, yes, you're definitely right on Pharaoh's side. It's definitely a combative conversation. But even Yulwe's a lot more direct than either Sulfur or Baez. He's aggressively you know I mean? passive. Yoy <laughs> in this meeting it's kind of fair yeah <laughs> well, he's like take my path or die <laughs> kind of like. but I mean, I mean even before I, getting I would to say that, like casual like, just him yeah. him approaching is I think I, I think I'd trade passive for casual but yeah yeah okay okay that's fair yeah yeah 
that's yeah. yeah. But I, I see, I see where you're on to. I see where you're, I see where you're sipping. He is presenting himself as a peaceful, unassuming traveler in mm-hmm. the most aggressive way possible. Right. Yeah. And then we get kind of a sense of him more later that I can't wait to talk about. But we also, before we move into sort of Yule Way and talking a little bit more about him and sort of the way that that looks, we get further pictures of the Gurkish here and their torture, even as Yoru's, or not Yoru, as Yule Way is running through the sort of mental image of what she'll be put through if she actually gets caught and captured. There's a lot there, of course, as she's, there's a cage for her in the middle and like, I think that he's being literal, not I don't at think all. He's, I don't think he's at all exaggerating or yeah, embellishing. This is anything. not an embellishment. This is for her. Yeah. This is exactly what's waiting for her. Mm-hmm. They, they, the Gurkish aren't good dudes, seemingly. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> <laughs> not that the Empire really feels very good. Either the union, yeah, or the union, Turkish Empire. Yeah, union. sorry, sorry, yeah. the union. No, you're good. You're um, good. Generic terms are used for exactly the reason that you would assume. You know what? Government is bad. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a core argument of this section. Actually, <laughs> I think Baez makes that argument pretty directly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this is the 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 most nonfiction part of this whole story that you should take from this story from from this series is don't trust your government i'm gonna get off my soapbox all right let's keep going so this whole time while they're having this conversation and kind of having a discussion uh as he approaches there's a gasping soldier of whom is dying on the ground and pharaoh executes the man with the shovel uh just directly to the the face or the neck i can't remember either way it's bad into the head into his brain head yeah right just the worst death, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, you go cleanly through. Imagine how much more force you have to put in to go through the head. You know what I mean? Versus the neck. Like, I'm softy, curious softy how much stuff. more it would be. I'm sure it's so much more. I would be genuinely shocked. Like, the head's fragile. You can do a lot of damage to the head. But obviously, we have a literal thick skull intended. Hey, if there are any doctors listening or nurses or anyone in the medical field, send us notes on skull versus neck. Versus, is it easier yeah. to put a shovel through a skull or a neck? See, this is the this is the most rapid of side tangents. But a lot of authors constantly say that they are on FBI watch list <laughs> because of the shit that they have to Google to try to figure out the answer to. And this is just one such example. Of, is it easier to kill someone by putting a shovel through their brain or their neck? For, uh, you know, because I can imagine like you get pretty good purchase on the temple with the with the tip of a spade. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming this is a good shovel. Mm, Good point. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is this is a makeshift traveler shovel. Mm -hmm. Mm. Okay. I think it just shows that she's violent, if nothing else. Like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the the cause of death doesn't matter because these people have tortured her to whatever degree, right? Mm-hmm. To to lengths, um, to a lot of she degrees. Actively feels stripped of her personhood. Yeah, as she recites later. But yeah, oof, oof. But she talks about the companions here in the dry, sandy badlands. Her outlook looks awful. But Yule offers her a path forward and a path through. 
a favor for a favor, as it were, getting her out of here. She owes him something for that exchange, and she'll have a clear path forward if they can wait until nightfall. I I mean, I'm going to keep talking about inner monologues I have for the last couple episodes, and I'm going to continue. Strong inner um, monologues in this series. so strong, but her decision-making is is very, very compelling. Just the hollow, unsatisfied feeling at her core, pushing her forward, wanting to fill it with revenge, and this this brief allowance through Yulwe of considering something else. Compelling, like I said. Yeah. Yeah. It's compelling to say the least. It's it's also fascinating. This is our first and only so far female point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So on top of that, there's this other side of this coin, which is like we have a female perspective now. That's new. And to kind of bring that in, she feels washed away of a lot of things and emotions. Not that like a female POV would innately have emotions, but she seems like she's been through the worst of it of any of our characters. And that includes Glockta, of whom has also been treated at the same hands. Like Glockta yeah. retains some form of personhood, but just barely. Like you, you can compare the two as tortured souls. Yeah. Glockta is hanging on, you know, to other meaning in his life. I'd be curious to compare the two in their in their same distance from torture. Like Glockta has so in a the, bit the luxury like of time and and recovery, if that can be uh, applied to him. But but yeah, you're you're totally right. This this is a tortured soul. This is a a stripped away person. When I think of a female POV, I, I expect more emotion just innately because that's how it's always been presented to me through stories. When, when dealing sure. with female yeah, characters. Limited, limited points of view. You know, if, if we if we take a moment and like just, I don't want to fully like backstep what you said, but I no. do want to at the very least give you the perspective of like, yeah, in the Greenbone Saga, we have multiple female POVs that have different sort of takes on life. Each of them more in touch with their humanity than Pharaoh is here. Like, yeah. but I think to me, what I'm trying to make make clear is that I think it has nothing to do with gender. I think it totally. has 100% to do with what she's gone through. Absolutely. 100%. And that's yeah. abs- that that's how you should be writing perspectives, I think. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. I, this right. is this is great. Yeah. Uh, sucks that she's <laughs> gone through this and, and sucks that she's in this state, but um I appreciate that this is the character that we're getting here. Part of what makes her a fun character is some of the reactions to that environment, which is sad on the one hand immediately. And I, I'm going to be frank, obviously, PJ, this week, you know, we always say at the top of our episodes, dealing with difficult, blah, blah, blah. This series is going to be more difficult than anything we've read that way, period. I I, I don't know how else to, I mean, we've seen it crop yeah. up already, but it is a much more, not that anything that we haven't read, it hasn't been adult. We've had very adult content in a lot of the episodes. I would say that Greenbone is probably the most explicit in a lot of different regions. Mm-hmm. But this is more varied trauma than anything that we've... Like, true true trauma inflicted upon these characters through their lives and, and the existence in the world. Which just gets back to our broad squeak quote of life the way it really is. is a battle not between good and bad, but between bad and worse. Yeah. And embodied... In, in the people that we see and we're experiencing the story through. Totally. And 
Sometimes I wonder if we really need our disclaimer at the top of the episodes. And we, we've never you missed one. We've done it on every times. single episode. Right. But I, I think there are probably some episodes we didn't need the this one. Yeah. Like the, this series, I think, I think we definitely do. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Kind of to round out the end of this chapter as well. We get more conversation around Pharaoh's prior life as a slave in the Empire, and it becomes apparent as she and Yulwe sneak around the fire, and rage is stoked in her as she hears more of the arrogant swine military men around the fire talk about their wives and sort of the way that they're able to just live normal lives, um, that she just becomes frustrated and immediately with that moment. But when she moves to strike, we find her magically occluded as Yulwe has shielded her from sight and sound which must be a portion of his area of focus as a Magi, as we kind of have come to understand art. Curious on your thoughts, both on the front end of Pharaoh and then also the back end of the old way. Yeah, I like these powers. I don't think I'm ever going to stop wanting to understand these powers more and their functions. And I am trying very hard to not think about mechanics all the time but i know i know that's just not that's not this series i get it but i i do like these powers yeah i i think the one the one thing that i really appreciate about art as it's been approached to us as a as a quote system of magic quote is that it requires intense study so we know that not everyone can do everything and i think for a soft magic system that's a great limit to set is yeah. that like it is impossible for everyone to do everything outside of maybe juvens in the past. Tying it to um, knowledge. Yeah. And, and making that comparison of like, nobody can know everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I like that. But you have to know limiting factor of it. Yeah. To, to know fire is to know the way that everything burns, you know, as like a methodology for knowing and understanding fire, but fire is the, the process in which the cells degrade when they're incinerated, when oxygen and combustion happens. Like that's such a wonderful explanation on a high level for a magic system that is soft. You know what I mean? Like this clearly, it's clearly a soft magic system as we're mm-hmm. continuing to explore, but it, it just asks, it asks questions, but I feel like part of the intrigue of any series is to have questions and to like be living in some form of ambiguity and to start to piece it together as you continue to roll through things. Right. So that's, that's how mysteries work and how plots work. So why should the magic be any different? You Mm -hmm. know, there is one final thing that I wanted to leave us with on this chapter. There's a wonderful quote and Pharaoh has a lot of sort of brutal moments as does Yulwe as they approach this as this sort of, you know, unlikely pair <laughs> as they proceed through the desert. He kind of says to herself, there's nothing left of me. What am I? I have nothing inside. And him after seeing this exchange where she was going to pull the knife, but then didn't and sort of her reflection internally responds with, well, it's strange that you should say that. I was starting to think there might be something in there worth saving. And yeah, what a what a mm-hmm. sweet, caring your way we get exposed what a sweet to right here. Yeah, more care than Bias showed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like by comparison, like you fucking I. I, I know obviously the relationship is not pre-existing by comparison, but I think about Malchus Kwai. <laughs> and Baez's relationship. And I think about Yulwe and Pharaohs and just sort of the in the moment comparisons of the way that they treat people. 
and it's night and day. Mm. <laughs> like it's obviously Logan's treated well, but I can't help but get like a what's the guy's name? Danny Ocean. I can't help but get like a Danny Ocean vibe sometimes from Baez, where he's like he's assembling people with a particular set of skills, and he's just got this fucking guy that he travels with all the time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just got to deal with this fucking guy. This fucking so, guy. Meanwhile, Yulway is just kind of nice. So, anyways, comparisons go. All right, moving on to the next chapter, the King's Justice, the chapter that is the namesake for my cocktail this week. But we'll talk about that in a little bit here. We then come to the culmination of the first part of Glockta's story. Through the eyes of the unsuspecting Jazal. I'm so curious before I get into this whole thing with the rest of them, what you thought about this sort of resolution of a different character's plot arc from another character's perspective. So I I don't know if you caught it, but normally when I I mean, it's only been two episodes until now. Yeah. But I go through the perspectives in my little breakdown of what happened this week mm-hmm. in order uh, like all of all of like one character's perspectives. You're mixing the character beats. I did notice. Yeah, you put the character beat for like the payoff for Glockta in his section, but it's Jazal's. Really. Yeah, I, I exactly. Like, yeah. I, I put Glockta second, even though Jazal mm-hmm. is the second perspective right. because it's 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 Glockta's it's Glockta's shit. Like <laughs> payoff. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah different, but I think very effective. In seeing it from the crowd and seeing this not, man, I love Glockta's internal monologue, but not having it cheapen the the presentation, I think was the right move. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if cheapen the right word, but I I understand understand what you're going for, but like short change because we've already kind of seen the presentation because of the torturing right Right. we've already seen this happen before it actually happens which is part of which just adds to the layering of pastiness that i i love from this book so much or the series so much but in particular the approach is one that we've talked about wanting from other book series you know we we talked we talked about red rising and like how cool the first trilogy is of course when you're stuck in that perspective but how much we want like an on the street gold like what's a regular gold's life like what's a regular gray's life this is that but from a pov character that we understand which is so good it's so wonderful um it's some of the joy that the later red rising books bring too but it is done immediately and in just so well i mean mm-hmm. This is the payoff of Glockta's first arc that we're yeah. seeing through someone else's eyes. That's a bold call to make. It is. Totally. But yeah. ultimately, I think the right one. I think it worked really, yeah. really oh, well. Yeah. It's it's tough to say. It's tough to speak natively. I'm saying this because I think it's so genius. Like, I think it's just such a smart, smart move. The Lords, Brock, Isher, Hugin, Barazin and many of the others of whom did not attend the prior open council meetings all attend in person for what is to be the trial expose seemingly of the decade. It seems as Arch Lecter Salt is summoned to speak on the status of the Honorable Guild of Mercers and the rest of the closed council is also in close attendance. I'm so curious in your thoughts of this sort of bureaucratic meeting of the houses and obviously this high level resolution. I found the chiming in from the crowd to be one comical and yeah, like, 
great in that sense, but also telling of the status of the people of the room. And like, maybe it's just the customs of the, the council itself, but to me, it felt like these are people entitled and, and feeling entitled to just chirp up whenever they feel like it. It, it made it feel almost more like a town hall meeting than mm-hmm. like a really impressive bureaucratic display. But it, it just these people like, yeah, they're doing a fine job. Yeah. I'm, just all this, all this cacophony of diamonds from the, t- from the uh, crowd was not expected, but well done. Yeah, I I appreciate in particular the way that this sort of court drama, this, you know, this whole setting is handled and the political sort of ramifications of it, I think, are just great. In particular, I love when Salt comes up and he begins to give the accusations before we get the step, click, clack, drag of Glockta that walks into the room. But surely before that, you know, we get the full accusation of what's happening and Phoenix Wright style, it feels like. Assault turns and goes, a fine job of dodging the king's taxes, that is. And it's just like this huge, this huge moment. And then we get the dragging out, the screams of all the people. And they're like, no, false, and blah, blah, blah. To your point of like the the shouting along of all the different lords. And you have mm-hmm. the yays and the nays. And oh, it's just so wonderful. Phoenix, right? Such a good call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it just, it feels like he does a dramatic shoulder turn. You know what I mean? Like it's he's really, facing the other he direction. He turns face. There's no way he doesn't. Ah. Yeah. Wait, if he, you didn't do it that way in an adaptation, I would be mad. <laughs> he's he's pacing back and forth on the stage and then just turning darkly to the crowd mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's something exactly. dramatic there. Totally. Mm-hmm. And in click step drags, our boy Sanda and Glockta limping, limping as a small legion of tortured prisoners are paraded out in front of us for our joy and for the weighty revelation quote that is to come. And so we see Glockta play these folks like a joyous orchestra of sorts while the horror-stricken Jazal looks on as the careful play led by Salem Ruse plays out. Jazal, oh man, his, his, I, I appreciated very much being in his mind here. Mm-hmm. And understanding, like, holy shit, that Salem Ruse, he was in bed with my dad. Not actually in bed, but, you, like, in business, business with my dad. Yeah. And the idea of, like, accusations of treason are contagious. Mm-hmm. A very real problem in, <laughs> in this sort of government, I think. To be worried mm-hmm. about, I, I man, he's got to got to keep his eyes open. Yeah, he definitely has to keep his eyes open, and all that to say, like this is, I mean, we've seen this play play out before, but it's something else to see it orchestrated, and then it's an additional thing to see it orchestrated from Jazal's perspective of, like you're saying, the immediate reaction of like all of the negative stuff, but in addition, Jazal buys it, like he is in, yeah. on the lie. Jazal seems to be somebody that buys into society in general, and that that's proving to be right. a very hard thing to shake, even with all of this mounting, not necessarily evidence, but like contrary ideas on his plate with Artie and with West and 
and all of all of that like upbringing is a hard thing to break man yeah right your your sort of innate political socialization as they call it it's a difficult thing to smash but it's it's so fascinating especially as we get into the other per not a perspective in the room but as we get into other people reading the room and for what it is right so we move then to sort of the result of this scene to some degree which is Assault's rival, Morovia, decrees the king's justice. Lord Brock stands honorably freaking out at the lack of reality in the room and believing this to be a fraud as it's occurred. And what's been called out previously is just sort of plain and clear as a fraud. And you've stated as such that you're like, I can't believe that they don't believe these kind of things. And he's he's like a you stand in in the moment that these folks have been tortured to say these things, but the conclusion was made before they even had entered the room. It doesn't change the sort of sense of perverse justice, but the King's justice seems to be exactly that in the union perverted. Yeah. Perverted. Yeah. But effective in accomplishing its goals. Right. Yeah. Regardless, it, it did it. Right? Yeah. Like if the end is all that matters, the means can be anything, you know? Right. Very yeah. true. Telling of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, did you have any thoughts on sort of your position, Brock's position, where he stands as sort of this, yeah, of this outsider that supported the Mercers? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious on like where you stood with, with Brock here yeah, and like I mean, his, his clear view of corruption. It doesn't feel like a fair trial, man. I don't know if they're entitled to one, but it, they didn't get one. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> it seems like we get some confirmation later through um just interacting with the the guild of mercers that there are illegal activities going on there is they're not innocent of what they're accused of but it it's not it's not the same as what they're being found guilty of if that makes sense yeah totally it absolutely makes sense it's a it's a quandary like because ultimately ultimately they were right and we'll get to that when we get to to the next perspective with glockta but for almost the wrong reasons totally the wrong reasons yeah 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 so like brock calls it out for like what he sees as an injustice does that beg the question of do you think that he's in on it or do you think that he just sees this as sort of a perpetual state of injustice I don't know if it even matters, you know. I fair. No, fair. I, I'm you, with you on that. I don't fair, think that but, it does. But is is he a good guy that sort of supports like a, a legal change in the right way, or do you think that it's just that this didn't go his way, and so or like does he even think that like a way matters? You know, like that's sort of my my perspective here is like is he honorable for the actual sake of honor, or and this is such a small part inside of this whole thing, but I think it's valuable as far as like interpreting, interpreting the politics. You know what I mean? Or is he like just doing it for bravado's sake or even just because it's not, it didn't go his way. I think he's right here and I think he's being righteous here. I don't think there are good guys in politics. Well, that's fair. So, <laughs> so but I, but, they, uh, but I think it extends, it, it extends to in a hundred thousand person society. We would hope that <laughs> He, a couple million. he is aligning with my values here, but I think his reasoning for aligning with my values here is selfish. Sure. Okay. That, that works for me. Do you, just as a clarification, 
Do you think that it's selfish on the front of he believes government should be better? Or do you think that it's selfish on the front of this didn't go his way? It, this didn't go his way. Okay. Yeah. That was that was the real sort of clarification. I think I people that think that for. government should be better don't find themselves in government. Well, yeah, but this is like blood government. You know what yeah, I mean? Like that's a, it's a little bit different. Like it he's is not a little bit different. You still have to strive to attain a place. I'm not saying that you don't, but or maintain or maintain. But like, it's not the same as like a mm-hmm. you know. It's, yeah. it's a little bit different. It is a little least, bit different, though. You're right. Yeah, just want to give that level of clarification, though. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, just to like consider the aristocracy. I'll support him right the, now. The union. Uh, I'll give him a vote. <laughs> You'd give Brock a vote right now. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, folks, we'll see you in 2,000 pages when we talk about this again. Just right, kidding. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, that was that was a bit. Uh, <laughs> but I believe it. <laughs> so so then we return to Jazal later. We see a little flirtation between Brent and Artie. And it he quickly interrupts, of course, feeling a fury in his chest for her and then thinks that maybe she could have planned the whole thing, perhaps. Regardless, after a brief classist outburst, classic Giselle, <laughs> about the man, they take a stroll and chat and he catches up her on what happened. But she seems to kind of already know, like she seems to already have an understanding, despite being a nobody in this city, as she repeats. There is so many little points throughout this mm-hmm. section and previous sections and, and this entire fucking story so far that is directing directing me to believe that she is a magical being like I've talked about mm-hmm. and I cannot for the life of me decide whether or not these are all intentional red herrings <laughs> or if she's actually magical and like there there's just all these hints being dropped I don't know it it could be just a really funny aggressive amount of red herrings i don't what believe if, that what to if be she's the case, just a hot I, smart girl you know yeah could she just be a hot smart girl she could be but i mean hot i mean smart I, girl, think that, I think she's also a hot smart girl like i, I yeah. don't think those are exclusive like mutually exclusive i think she is hot smart magical girl that likes fucking <laughs> with people's heads <laughs> fair all right but cool. i i there there's some contrarian evidence to some of my theories that i'm sure we'll talk about later on in this section and i i think there's potentially an additional external source of magic magical fuckery happening but Mm, we'll get there all right so we end with Giselle wishing that she had more money in the right blood and maybe reckoning with all that in his head just for a moment. Like there's he seems to be at odds with the sort of classist and I'm just going to sum it up. Generally speaking, from here on out, as like his classist ideals. It's more than that. There's also some that, sexism. There's also some other things, to, to but it's like it. sort of that that embodies a lot of it. So, you know, yeah. what, do, what do you make? I, I think. We talked about this a little bit just a couple of questions ago or a couple a couple of points ago. The removing the block from your mind of like how you were raised and in your lifelong worldview is mm-hmm. glacially slow. Yeah. And like I'm, I'm or glad glacial, we're getting these or, sort or of difficult. 
Yeah, exa- exactly. But insurmountably, we difficult. seem to be getting baby steps, and those baby steps are in the form of oh, what's the word for it? Asynchronies. Mm. Hmm. But I, I think I think we're shifting in the right directions for Jazal. Okay. Cool. And I, I think that makes for a really cool. Knowing that there are so many books in this series, and and hope hoping that Jazal doesn't fucking die in a couple chapters after this section, like hopefully we get a really really interesting, compelling, well maintained evolution of this character that isn't just a stark change of like oh this sexist classist guy is suddenly. Uh, not sexist or classist anymore. Like I, I like that we're getting this slow progression because that's how it is in people. Like it, it takes a lot, and it, it's not a flip of a switch to change how they think about things. So, yeah, it's it's very real, and I think that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about this book series in general is that the arcs are real. They're slow. Everything's character driven. Um, first and foremost, like the entire story. You know, like a lot of writers are like. I, you may not be in on this sort of side of discourse, but a lot of people are like, yeah, the characters guide the plot, right? The characters guide the plot. But I think that a lot of writers, despite the characters maybe taking meandering points in the plot, don't actually let them lead the story. And unlike most writers, I think Abercrombie lets, and and Brown, to be fair, I mean, if talking about two writers, I think Abercrombie and Brown, more than most, let their characters lead the story. And let them lead the path without sort of other intents. Okay. If that makes sense. It's one of the reasons that, you know, for me, I've criticized book three of Red Rising is because it's like, it feels like it should have been a whole nother story because it seemed like you wanted to go other places, right? Mm-hmm. Or it seems like you wanted to go down other paths before coming to that end because it all happened so quickly. And I think that's a symptom of a lot of books that seem to end quickly is it's generally other other agendas that are outside of the writer's purview. So, okay. Part of the reason this is such a random diatribe, but part of the reason that like old texts like the Aeneid, like the Iliad, like the Odyssey are so meandering is because the author had time to meander and the story had time to meander. So, and like there was no editor, you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, verbal tradition or vocal tradition or oral tradition had time to like edit the story over time. But in reality, Part of the reason that the stories go all the places that they do is because they're allowed to. Mm. Eh. Yeah. Random thought. Yeah. But makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. Cool. So let's go to the next chapter Means of Escape. We then return to Glotka with Jalen Horm having screamed at the door a couple of times, proving to be ineffective, allowing for Frost to absolutely batter the door down as the rest of the Mercers proceeds. It's a sorry, brutal scene as they're all arrested and battered. Screams of I confess filling the halls. Coming to two guards, one listens to Glockta's ask of moving them out of the way. And the other does not. And Frost easily throws him tumbling down the stairs until he lies at the bottom. Not 100% certain if his neck is broken, but just the comparison in the moment with Glockta's internal monologue. I don't know. I don't think he's getting up. At least not soon. I don't think think so. so. I think this section gives us the smallest glimpse into what Glockta 
could have been like as a soldier. Like, obviously, he's still very limited by his physical deformities. But he presents himself as he's going down the corridors and, like, making, like, shouting things as as this bold, outspoken leader in a very confident he's way. Commander. Like, he, he's stepping yeah. into these this role that he has always kind of step click dragging into this role. Thank well, you very much. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but like, he, he embodies this character very well mm-hmm. and very naturally. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, it's, it's sort of like his natural state and it's like he's defaulted back to something inside of him that he doesn't get to be all mm-hmm. the time. And it's very different which, which from I, the Glockta that we've come to know. This yeah, that we this conventionally bold, outspoken character. Like he's not yeah. generally. No part of this is manipulative. All of this is understanding of the reality of what's going on. Which you could say, like his, the reason he makes such a good torturer is not just because he was tortured, but it's because he understands the human psyche better than most mm. at this point. And so, as such, he understands that he only has so much time. There are only so many rat holes. And that he has to like do these things quickly and effectively in order to get them done. And he can take that understanding and then verbalize it and communicate it like a leader. Yeah. And what can I say to get somebody to do what I want them to do, regardless of if I'm lying through my teeth or not? Like, right. <laughs> these guards, like, no harm will come to mm-hmm. you. You'll be fine. You have my word, which means nothing. Yeah. You yeah. have my word, which is thin. We then come to a large part of this chapter that I'm just going to try to sum up and then we can talk about it all because I think that's the way that we should digest it. But we then come to the actual catching of Colt. He stands by a window, his neck adorned with a necktie of twine varietal tied to the bottom of a cabinet while he's prepared to jump through a window to escape the Inquisition's clutches. And there's something so fascinating about the scene as Glockta... Glockta, right? Glockta. Glockta. My brain still read the series more than a couple of times, and I still can't do that sometimes. Glockta says, there's no questions left to answer. And even Colt believes that he won't be answering any questions as he suggests that he's not going to be tortured to do so. But then directly, and I mean very directly, provides answers and a new set of questions to our protagonist (laughs) about the Mercers and the relationship with the bankers, like those of Valentin Bulk. He points in so many other directions outside of the Mercers, including the university, the Inquisition itself. I'm curious where your mind spins on sort of Colt's revelation before he jumps out the window. Yeah, I the information is all very compelling and I think not entirely unexpected that there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the the information specifically, but just in general that the Mercers have been kind of put forward as a sacrificial lamb. What I'm trying to wrap my head around yet is Colt's motivation to share all of this with Glockta in these final moments. And maybe it's just confidence, which I I don't necessarily believe, but I, I think more likely is that it's this fleeting hope that he'll shake Glockta into looking deeper 
and not letting the Mercers and everything that he's built and everything that he's spent his life on, not not letting them be the fall guys for this deeper corruption. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's not as though they aren't corrupted, as he says. Right. Yeah. Like, no, of course. But they're not they're not the end of the line and i think he understands that he his life is over whether or not he gets caught here so to to not let the mercers go down in vain might be the best motivation that he's got to to say all this Do you i don't think know for sure but that's my else. that's my take on it okay i i love that i love that take it's a very interesting i just want to Posit another question to you. Do you think that in, in the moment, obviously, he's hearing the Inquisition and reacting to that in the moment of him being captured? But in preparation, obviously, there's all these assassinations that we find out about, and there's all these sort of like cover ups that are happening on the inside of the organization. Do you think that he was fearing something that wasn't just the Inquisition? Do you think that he was fearing the other parties potentially that he was liable to as well to a greater degree than maybe even the, the Inquisition? Mm. Because, like, if he has all this information to give the Inquisition, why would you kill yourself? You have to be afraid of something more. Well, right? I, th- I, I don't think he, he gets out of torture, torture, regardless of if he has information or not to share. Oh, true, true. We, I mean, well, I, and I, I don't, don't think he gets out of this death freely either. Maybe fair. I don't think he gets out of death. King's justice would put him to death no matter what. Yeah. So, I, I think. It's a fairly compelling argument in my mind that if he's going to die either way, he might as well do it on his own terms and avoid the torture precluding the death. Sure. Do you think that it's the Inquisition's torture? Do you think that there's any other looming specters over him? Obviously, we know that the bank, (laughs) he mentions the bankers and like all of these other orgs, but. Well. I think it's the Inquisitions because he seems to believe that the bankers are not getting the money from the Mercers at this point anyway. Mm. Sure. Maybe there's an edge case where he survives the torture from the Inquisition and then is subjected to torture from the bankers as retribution, which is doubly fucked. Yeah. So, like, I, I, be- I could believe it, but I think his immediate concern is probably the arrest in the inquisition okay and their cool. torture but who i i don't know that's 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 me not knowing anything about these bankers answering this question yeah we've we've got like this story is so great for so many reasons there's so many different plot threads at this point chasing around in the air and one of the one of the critiques that i hear often is that oh this book has no plot i'm like no it's got a very clear fl- plot if you take a moment and you just make sure that you're taking in what you're experiencing. So it's, it's just very interesting. It's one of the common critiques of this novel. And it's like, especially reading it slowly like we are, plot is very clear. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, I, want, I wonder if my read on this would be different if we read it differently. But I, I think well, that's I true. I think that that's, that's kind of my story. argument. Like, we, we read yeah. it fairly uniquely. I didn't feel like it was meandering, but I can't help but feel like maybe binge attitudes or even regular attitudes that aren't bingey could lead you to like be just questioning why you're reading what you're reading. You know, like if you took this like 20 pages a night, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Where are you going? What's going on? But I, I feel like the plot's clear. Anyway, that's more is, of a is side that critique than of somebody else. that doesn't understand that this is the beginning of like a nine or twelve book. Generally series. speaking, it is for the most part. I I would say this trilogy is pretty cleanly locked as a trilogy. Like I mentioned in our initial episode, it's like the Lord of the Rings. It's intended to be consumed as one thing. Personally, I think of book one and two as one long book, and then book three is the conclusion, which is basically what the Lord of the Rings is. So, like, mm-hmm. that's kind of the same grouping mentally that that I have. That um, makes sense. With it. So, and then Sharp Ends has a little bit of The Hobbit in it, just for fun. But, yeah, and then the sequel books are completely different. They wildly, wildly vary. But the initial trilogy, I think, obviously, the other side of this is that you always want people to start at the beginning. And part of the reason that Abercrombie wrote the standalones was so that people would read those first. But if you talk to any fan of the series, they're like, no, shut up. Read the fucking trilogy first. <laughs> like, if, if, you ever talk to, if you ever talk to anyone, they're like, you're going to get spoiled on something small that feels so significant if you know what it is in the original trilogy. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it, It's tough. It's a tough. It's not like it's a tough sell because the series is so great and Abercrombie is so good writer. But it's it's difficult to give why sometimes like it's it's very tough to to articulate. I have a very clear argument for the Dark Tower in my head as to like book one was weird. He wrote it long before he wrote the other ones. It was sort of an out there idea. Yada, yada, yada. I can I can give that spiel for why people might not like the gunslinger and why they should read book two after book two. I'm like, if you didn't like book two, you're not going to like this. (laughs) Like, that's fine. But with this, I'm, I'm like, you got to read all three books because if you don't, you didn't even get why you read them to begin with. Like, mm-hmm. you, you don't you don't understand anything until you've read all three. So yeah. Anyway, I digress. Gotcha. Getting back to the core of the story, there's this quote that I like as blocked as analyzing the scene post jumping out the window. He says, cheap clothes and expensive windows. If the cloth had been stronger, we would have got him. If the window had more lead, we would have got him. Lives hinge on such chances. He's depicted as dangling out the window and a woman screams below. And he thinks in his internal monologue, fear or excitement, they sound the same. And there's so much in this little paragraph to unpack in so many different ways. Cheap clothes, expensive windows is just like this presentation and this affectation that the union has seemingly adopted as like a false artifice on top of deeper corruption, like we've talked about in the prior chapter. And it all sort of like stacks on top of itself mm-hmm. in, a, I think, a lovely and artistic way. But then in addition, the final line is just a gut punch. Yeah, that that final line has stuck with me. I think I my, my take on it is that it mostly maps another symptom of Glockta's sort of lasting wounds in his time in captivity of like just not really being able to properly distinguish positive and negative strong emotions just strong emotions are strong emotions and it doesn't matter if they're good or bad yeah it only it only gets different which is hard thinking thinking on that for a moment giving consideration to glockta's perspective i feel like the quote is in and of itself real in our current existence, right? Like, obviously, there's something to read from Glockta's perspective of where that comes from, in particular, because if you are just tortured, maybe the moment of torture is a moment of excitement at the deepest depths of, like, your own 
deprived existence. If if all of your nor- nerves have been burned to the ends, you have one left. You know that tickling sensation of something different might be enough. Might be enough of a thrill. Like I don't know. That's a tough tough mm-hmm. thing to parse. Kind of spitballing here, but yeah. I, I mean, think think about think about a roller coaster. No. And the sounds that you hear on the roller coaster, you could, you could, if you wanted to, take that sound bite and like apply it to something horrifying. But it it strips out to say that they're the same, and that they like to to make comments on them sounding the same of it fear and and excitement strips out all of the context of what's going on, and for him to be sort of numb. Well, it suggests it, that it, fear is exciting, though, too, is the other side. Well, there's like, that. It suggests... Yes, yeah. but fear is exciting when... If you're a sadist, you know what I mean? Or a masochist, I mean, y- right? Like, you can you can put those edge cases in. You can you can put the... Yeah. But in totally. the general public, in the general, sure. the general populace, yeah. people are excited by fear when it's fear that's measured and they know it's actually safe, you know? Uh, haunted houses, etc. Haunted houses, roller coasters, the, the, things like that, where where it's intentional, but it's there are safeguards, and they're like yeah, they're they're doing it on purpose. Whereas he doesn't. There, there's this some is disconnect here. There, yeah. There's some. There's something wrong with his sort of internal monologue and and i i know i'm going to get into this later as well um but his internal monologue is not necessarily reflective of reality or not not the full the full scope of reality if that no, makes he's sense. definitely been imparted with I, all these characters have one degree or another right like i think that's I mean, that's the strength of this novel on the whole, but also, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot mm-hmm. to parse. One of the one of the clever, clever things that Abercrombie did in this original trilogy. Yeah. With that, we move into the next chapter. Three signs. We return to West's perspective, getting his ass absolutely handed to him by a substantially improved Jizal. And there's a little bit of rage tucked in him, if not a similar of a similar pride between these two men as they spar. Zal is also improving by seemingly wide margins, considering where he was, you know, prior to part two. But it ends with an outburst and a lashing out that seemingly ends the relationship between Artie and Jazal on the spot. As Jazal both respects West's opinion, but also he he's pretty intense on accident and almost like blacks out as he approaches and grabs the shoulder. Like it's it's a lot. Yeah, and uh, this is this is more of that sort of quote unquote evidence in my mind of their heads mm. being fucked with, and like I don't, <sighs> this is this is the one where I'm like, is it not actually Artie that's doing this? Because why would she be doing this to herself? Especially getting into like the last section of this book where Artie is talking to Logan. Um, yeah. Logan, which I mean, she doesn't give her name, but it's clearly Artie, right? 
Right. Yeah. Clearly. Like intentionally. Obviously. Like she she feels yeah. so disconnected from everything in this city as a result of But this. she calls herself nobody. Like, yeah. Like this this is directly like this interaction is the reason Analyst. why she acts like yeah. that at the end of this section. And like I don't that that's what makes it feel like maybe it's not actually Artie that's the the one fucking with everybody's heads, but it doesn't feel natural. And West's own perspective, he's like, why did I say this? Like, why why did I act so harshly? Why was I holding on so strongly? Like, it's conceivable that he just overreacted. But he's always been so calculating and he's always been so, so measured and he is going forward as well later on in this section where, where he's meeting with, uh, the, the Lord Marshal. Like he, he, he has a pride to him though. He's got faults, he's you got, know, like sure, for sure. And, yeah. and he's he the good man that as he's, he's pitched, you know, but like he himself. I don't know. It, it just it feels like it's pointing towards something unnatural tugging on his emotions or, or drawing out these emotions more than they are intended to be drawn out. I don't I don't this is this is that section where I don't necessarily believe that it's already doing it, but I don't know who else it would be. Given the totally fair other context of them in their home in in major west's apartment or home or whatever it is. I, I think apartment right yeah it's it's like a hallway mm-hmm. if it's somebody else they are very good at hiding and following sure. and and being nearby without being seen i don't know uh, and i i'm 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 off on a tangent i know but it's the theory that i'm building in my own mind this is magical manipulation. Yeah. Okay. For both yeah. West and Gizal. Okay. All right. So we then turn to West's meeting with Lord Marshal Burr, and we now see that the Union has received their three signs, three heads delivered in wooden boxes, leaders of the frontier, and it seems it's also time for them to gather all that they have to fight for the Northmen. But Burr himself, despite his bouts of indigestion, seems wary of the Empire and its new emperor, Uthman el-Dosht, the safe- and the safety of Degoska as a result. All right. I get that it was, it was a profound showing of what the Northmen have sent, but God damn it. Lord Marshal Burr, you don't need to be so theatrical <laughs> about making Major West open all of these empty head boxes and smelling what's inside of you can just tell them you can just tell him they sent us fucking heads. Like you don't need this this theater. What's in the box? What's in the box? Like, you, don't, boxes. you don't need to make this man <laughs> open these smelly boxes one by one and then explain what's going yeah. on. Like yeah, that's fair. It, it felt it felt overly theatrical for for no real good reason. I mean, in a kind of delightful way, I, I liked it in particular. I think I just like Marshall Burr, especially when compared against Veruz, right? Like he's a very different person 
It but. felt like it was for the reader as opposed for or as opposed to for uh, Oh, that's so interesting. I, I I think I disagree, but I understand where you're going for. I think that this was What's the purpose then? What's the purpose of no. making him open these boxes? It's to stir something in him to make him feel like he should be doing this because of how he understands Marshall or excuse me, Major West to be like. And so it's to give him a motivation to do a thing to exceed the bounds of what he's capable of, because that's all this man does. Major West is just constantly pushed to the brink of capability and then continues to exceed it. Like that's that's his mantra. That's like what he's done up until this point. And it works. Yeah. Wholeheartedly, you know, so I I think that. I think that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give credence to Burr's intelligence to push him to do something that's outside of his bounds because he also gives him that like ability to exceed his class status, right? Yeah. Like, there's a combination of things I think going on here that Burr is smart to that I would give Burr credit for. Okay. I can, which also could be the cause of his indigestion because he thinks too much and thinks too hard. I can get behind <laughs> that. I'm not entirely wholeheartedly convinced of it but i can get behind it sure okay i that that's again just my my impression that i get is predominantly driven by i i think for the most part it's differences especially between the lord marshals that we've met right we met veru's or is he just marshall veru's is he not lord marshall i think he's lord marshall veru's yeah no he's lord marshall okay we're good but Veru's in, in general, and I think it just kind of contrasts these two mentors for West against each other as well, which I think is kind of a useful thing to do, especially in their approaches. Veru's is a car- or is a stick guy, and Burr is a carrot guy. The carrot may, in fact, be a couple of empty heads, but that's to build rage in him so that he yeah. wants to do a thing, right? But I think it just contrasts those two well against each other. Yeah. Okay. I can... You're convincing me. Yeah, you don't need to be convinced. That's no, just I, my opinion. No, uh, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we finally get the name of the emperor of the Gurkishir, Uthman Aldosht or Aldosht, and get like a very different naming scheme. We learned that Aldosht means the relentless. Is it, is it the relentless or was it the godly? No, it was it was the it was something like relentless. It was, or we'll look it up when we get to Pharaohs. We'll double check. But yeah, I, I love that he's got a surname in a foreign language as well. Like that, the fact that like Sand Dan, and like Dan is used as like this thing between names, is different than the way that Uthman Oldosht is like a phrase, like a title. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that's that's a cool difference. Just that is a cool difference. Linguistics. So, love and to give credit. Killed his, his brothers. <laughs> His brothers and his dad died. Curious. That's curious too. Did he kill his dad? Yeah, or ruthless. It was. I think it is the ruthless. The ruthless. Yeah. 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 For some reason, I thought it was something with godliness, but that might be different. It definitely wasn't that. It was. It was a descriptor of the way that he killed his family. Yeah. Very akin in my mind immediately. I, I don't know where your mind goes, but it reminds me of the Syrians or Persians in history, of course, the, the Persian Empire, the Syrian Empire, and sort of the the understanding of sort of those societies as they were at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not. I used to know a lot more about it, 
but I ha- that's I fine. It's been like 15 years since I've taken a totally world history cool. class. Yeah. I've been dusting up on history for a variety of reasons, but this is partially one of them. So, mm-hmm. all right. So it then becomes very clear what West is to do due to his connection with England and his understanding of the Northman language. He's to lead another charge, like the one he did among the first of the Ulriarch, or sorry, of the first in Ulriarch against the Gurkish. And he's worried, particularly, it feels, for his place and his ability to command as a commoner. But Burr is forward-thinking and wants to promote him in spite of his blood and of his money and all of his backing and everything that's behind him. And that sort of difference, I think, is critical, like I've said, you know, while we've been talking about it. And West is, I think, like, happy about finally being recognized in a higher regard than what he was before. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he always feels that way, but it's like it's like the next step. Yeah, there's a pride there for sure. Yeah, um, I do love the fact at the end that we're, we're given straight up like this isn't a request. This is an order. Like you're, you're doing this and mm-hmm. you're, you're my man for it. And I, I'm being nice about it and presenting it like this is your choice, but it's not like <laughs> you're just going to do this. I find West's perspective very nice to inhabit. It's like, like I said, man. generally very calm and calculating and thoughtful, except for that one sort of outburst against Dissolve, but humble and it just, I don't, I don't know. I, I like it. Totally. I get that. I love Wes. He's one of my favorite POVs from the entire story. I, I really appreciate everything that he brings to all of it. With that, let's go into the theatrical outfitters. Our last chapter before our break. And now we come to Mr. Nine Fingers himself. And we finally get a full, complete picture of Adwa. And she is glorious to behold. The white towers, the distant edges of the city with jumbled houses, all next to a glorious blue bay as they come in. It's just, it's an incredible photo picture for us as readers that we finally get to see this Sydney in all of its splendor. We've seen it from a street level for a long time, but not from a big macro view because Jazal and Glockta wouldn't be looking up at the things that are focused on the streets. It's different. Logan yep. is allowed to take in the view and the consideration of everything. And as such, he is not used to it at all. And he isn't into this sort of thing. We're going to explore that over the course of his narrative this week, but there's there's a lot to unpack there. Baez, of course, gives an explainer of the city of sorts, and it's and it's politics where lowly men squabble and debts and bargains never truly settle and so much more. What were your thoughts on sort of our true introduction to Agila? This scene and this chapter in general surprised me, I think, and has has made its made its way into my brain pretty prominently. I've been thinking about it a lot in the last week. It hadn't ever crossed my mind that Logan had never even heard of a city like this before. It got me to think about what it would be like to live in such an unpopulous place like the North. What is Carleon like? You know, like the North City that we know of. Or, Or these battles that he's been so prominently a part of. I'm not quite sure. I, like, I can't decide whether or not it's more or less impressive that his reputation is pretty universally known in the North. Like, there, there's 
fewer people to know him, but there's also way fewer people to spread his tale and like spread mm-hmm. spread the the legend of Logan Nine Fingers. Like he is ubiquitous there and unknown mm-hmm. here, and is uh, frozen in awe of the just raw number of people that he's going to be interacting with. It's so I, kind of like what's what's the term? I just want to I want to add in just a moment here. It's kind of like the people who never grew out of high school. You know what I mean? What's what's the phrase? Like they they never escaped that sort of bubble. Like that's kind of what Logan is in the moment. Like he's just been locked in that one shell, hasn't seen the wider world. Yeah, but I, it's I it's even more like it's even more aggressive. It's than that. more than that. It's yeah. more than that. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of like these are these are two vastly different understandings of technology like these are different ages in human evolution that we're dealing with like this is i mean not quite but close as far as the industrial sort of side of things go i don't know maybe maybe i've mostly been thinking about it a lot because i spent this last week in northern wisconsin in a very small town whose even smaller than normal because it's usually like a really intense snowmobile destination and there's no snow right now this like this year so it's just really really small desolate town which i love so much so much fun to spend time there but like we're just walking along these snowmobiling trails and spend two, three, four hours on the trail and don't come across a single other person or the sound or idea of another person the entire time. I, that was running through my mind a little bit while, while I was doing that. You did kind of leave from like, I wouldn't call it a city by any stretch, but basically to the remote north <laughs> by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, and that perspective, that sort of like, you know, never left, never grew up from high school perspective, just in in the terms of like the understanding of the world is something that's wild and different here. Like, I don't know if if you've ever thought this, but like there are a number of people I've number of people that I know have visited New York City, but to live in there is a very different life. And so to understand those kind of different walks of life is something that, you know, people might have difficulty with. And this is just one such gripping of that sort of reality from a from a character's perspective in a fantasy story which again abercrombie how did you somehow pull that into the story like right. good work my dude yeah he's like hundreds of thousands of people live here i've only seen thousands i think and like you know there's like this whole counting thing of like how many people are there even in the north like i don't know i'm just logan nine figures <laughs> I'll keep track of that shit. Yeah, he but. didn't believe that there were that many people in the entire world. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Which is a a whole a whole thing. Logan, like we're saying, is absolutely shocked by the scale, the scent, and the disparity between the rich and the poor as he walks in Adjua. He finds himself so completely lost among the crowds of people. This is so different and shocking to the man. We finally get a full definition of the Agriant as well, as it is a city within a city, the barracks, the capital, the the throne, all of the things that we'd come to expect about, like maybe the inner sanctum of 
something like DC, where there's the National Mall. That's sort of what I view the Agriant as. But he's really stricken by a poor woman and child that, as he's walking under a bridge, wishing to help them and being thrown off by the callous nature of Baez, as he notes, they're everywhere and explains trickle-down poverty economics. I I'm, I mean economics. Oh, man. This was this was a sad section to witness. Yeah. Totally. And, it, I mean, Logan's got to get out of this place. <laughs> Logan doesn't belong here. Yeah. Logan deserves to yeah. be back in the woods. It's better there. <laughs> it's better in the woods, dude. <laughs> better in the woods with those fucking guys who want to eat your brains. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, the Shanka are better than this. <laughs> Just a different variety of Shanka. Yeah, it's it's hard and especially different. And really, it doesn't get better as we move on, of mm-hmm. course. Like, it just becomes different. And we'll, we'll talk about it more, I think, when we get to that section. But there's also his reaction to the poorly equipped soldiers and woof their chances, given Logan's understanding of what they're facing as they are preparing for the North, as Baez seems to imply. Harsh. Yeah. Harsh. I, I like that he wonders if they're criminals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> between this scene and the the previous conversation between West and the Lord Marshal, like, mm, man, I don't know what's gonna happen to these kids <laughs> when they meet ardent Northern soldiers. Like, if all of like, I know Logan is a standout, but I can't imagine he's that far elevated from the sort of ilk that they'll be fighting as far as Northmen go. Yeah. I mean, just to give like even the smallest bit of perspective, if we consider the dog man chapters that we've had before, we get an understanding of like his crew. And for the most part, they probably still seem like they're all mostly better than these troops initially. And they're, they they were all like poorly the the weakest. weakest. He draws. Yeah. He draws the comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Ooh, that's bad. He's like, they don't Uh-oh. look better than that. And that was sent out as a surrender. Yeah. Tactic. Like they're yeah. they're absolute most meager Worst. soldier as the as the means of surrender. Fuck oh, man. That's bad. That's, that's, really that's real bad. bad. Yeah. We then arrive at sort of the purpose of the chapter, which is an outfitter to help them gear for their upcoming appearance in the closed council. As Baez plans on filling his long absent chair, it seems fitting that they don the appearances of more classical magi and so adjust to the superficial expectations of those coming. We've talked about superficiality a couple of times this week. Of course, it spins around. Themes are themes on themes. Baez has a line, though, that I really appreciate here. Oh, it's a new piece. I'm still working on the details. More a scene than an entire play. A scene in which Baez, the first of the Magi, finally takes up his seat on the closed council. Just the way that he phrases all that and says it is just so precise and wonderful to this, mm-hmm. like, to this costume maker. As he's talked about doing plays yeah. with Juvens before. Like all of these different performances that he's done in the past. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I don't quite get the impression that there are newspapers yet. It doesn't seem like that. We're not industrial. But can you imagine if there were the shopkeeper Mm -hmm. posting a newspaper clipping of 
of bias in his costume. A photo bias. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the... <laughs> You're so the right. marketing that he'll be able to to utilize going forward when it comes out that the first the great of the Magi bias, but- yeah. was wearing his costume when he proclaimed himself to the rest of the city. Like this dude's gonna be fucking set for life. Yeah, for the rest of his life for sure. That's such a that's such a great point and such like a a deep a deep bit here amongst the rest of it. I love that. Any other thoughts on this sort of dress up that's played here and sort of the play angle? I, I love song. how he's playing uh, him like a fiddle. Uncomfortable Logan is in the in the whole scenario, but also his insight on like this shit would be ineffective in keeping me warm. It would be ineffective in keeping me safe. Like, what is the fucking purpose of, of <laughs> why this, are we doing this? Of yeah. this piece of garment that I'm being told to wear. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how well this would actually fool anyone. Like it, he hmm. he says himself that he can like tell that these are not like that these are props, and it's one thing to be on stage in props, and it's another thing to mm-hmm. be like amongst people in in yeah. costume and props, and like those those are two very different. Uh, ways Very that you true. have to build costumes for scrutiny. Very true. I'm so excited to chat more about this on the whole as we kind of continue through this perspective and bias. And I, I guess I want to ask, I, w- I was going to say, I was going to maybe hold this until a little bit later, but what are your thoughts as they stand on bias do you think that he's like telling the truth about like where he is and where he came from do you think that he's like a i think he's totally holding back i think he's he's sharing what he needs to but i don't think he's being entirely forthright with in in what regard i guess is like the next question like what what do you think that he's withholding uh i think he's a lot more important to history than even Oh, okay. So you're on that side. That was kind of, yeah. I wasn't trying to give you that question necessarily because I think that that's a little too leading, but you believe that he's on, he's more important in history than even he's leading on to believe. I think he's the maker. Oh, okay. Which I, Canadius. Like, yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll get into that more later, I think. Okay. But like, I, I think he is downplaying even his importance to history interesting okay yeah all right getting into our little drink segment here pj what are you drinking tonight what's your cocktail we asked our discord for some on theme drink names and got a couple mine is pharaoh's revenge so i went with something earthy i wanted something like earthy and herby and kind of raw in that sense so, what I put together was a cocktail that I served in a coupe glass, two ounces of aquavit, one ounce of lemon juice, one ounce of red wine syrup, half an ounce of Benedictine, half an ounce of Fernet Branca, and about 10 drops of Hellfire Shrub from Bitterman's. And then all of that shaken served up 
and then a spritz of absinthe over the top of that. And it created this really kind of strange, for how herbaceous it was, it was also very light and, and I mean, it, it was a lot of lemon juice for it. So like citrus and, and open and not quite a sour, but kind of verging in that sense. It made for a really cool cocktail. I really like, I liked, it's already gone. I drank it all in the first yeah, half. So, but it was my second attempt at it. My first attempt included fewer drops of Hellfire Shrub and I included a couple drops of absinthe before shaking and also a couple dashes of Peshad's bitters. And that that put the sort of anise note a little bit too far forward. So um, I I wanted the more hellfire. I wanted a little bit more of a, of a spicy bite. I think I could go even stronger with it, but I think it was the right move to drop the Peshad's and just do a sort of aromatic spritz of absinthe over the top of the cocktail already created. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice bright red bloody cocktail for for Pharaoh. Yeah, start playing around with Aquavit, man. That looks so good, and it sounds so tasty. So it's especially that second batch. But I gotta start every time you mention Aquavit. I'm like, God, I gotta grab a bottle. Yeah, I, I mean, gotta do. I gotta do something. I treat it like a gin. It's yeah, right. In my mind, it's basically like a vodka with not. Uh, is it botanicals? Maybe like it, it feels like it falls into the same category as gin, but unique. Yeah, I, I feel like in my mind, it is very similar to gin. It's just you know a different dominant flavor by comparison is caraway or dill versus we generally associate gin with juniper. Right. So there's your yeah, yeah. there's your answer. But, but on theme, is the I have water a back life. half beer. Hmm? Yes. Aquavit is the water of life. Yeah. Yeah. So. There you go. Back half beer is, is also on theme. I had come up with a cocktail name before we asked for cocktail names, and it was sh- Shovel's Bite. Uh, mm-hmm. Shovel Bite. And I, the more I thought about it, the more it kind of fit with Pharaoh's Revenge, but also the Snake Bite. Of the traditional snake bite is harp lager, or uh, yeah, harp, harp cider. lager and smithic cider, I think. Oh, okay, yep. I didn't have either of those, so two different, <laughs> two different ciders and and beers. I, I did Blue Moon and oh, what was the cider? The I threw the cans away already, but just a, a dry cider. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes for a great, like slightly sweeter than the normal Blue Moon, but not with the not fucking with the flavors too much. Um, yeah, nice, nice little beer cider combination. The shovel's bite. Nice. I love that. Love that. I similarly went to the Discord for a name. As we've asked before, give us names, give us titles, give us ideas, send us stuff for for drink t- titles or cocktail titles. We'd love that. Um, but I went with the King's Justice. It was recommended by another of our Discordians, as it were. But the King's Justice, of course, is a cloudy cocktail. It's it's a sour naturally because no one likes, no one loves the taste. I actually love a sour, but you know, it's a little distillate. You can't see through it all the way because it's not perfectly transparent, is it? There might even be hints of 
blood red dripped throughout the whole thing. But basically what the King's Justice is, is it's it's spin on a, you know, it's a spin on a sour. It's nothing too crazy. It's two ounces of vodka, an ounce of gin, half ounce of curacao to give it a little bit of just sort of like a caramely backing. I wanted to like deepen the color and make it more occluded without getting into like other territory. Egg white, of course, in, in any sour. Half ounce of ginger syrup, which is less than you might expect for a syrup. And we'll get into wine in a moment. An ounce of lime juice. And then as opposed to lemon. I understand. That's weird. But I liked it. It was it was a particular choice. This is meant to be a difficult to, to swallow cocktail, but it was still tasty. Um, lemon might lend itself to be a more natural profile for the rest of these things. But lime was meant to be abrasive. Lime and curacao were playing together intentionally. Uh, and then a bar spoon poured to look like the blood of uh, grenadine down the edge to give it this sort of red tint as though it's it's bleeding out, kind of like a shark attack, but like a little bit more aggressive. Uh, and then two dash, or a little less aggressive, excuse me, so just mostly floating on top a little bit right there. Then two dashes of Peychaud's. I would say, just as a small edit, I wouldn't do the Peychaud's at all. I wouldn't do any bitters on this cocktail. I would do just a smidge more grenadine and I would like drip it over the top a little bit more so that it does lead to that sort of like gradual occlusion because by the end of us drinking and like leading to the section, I did get my little pool of grenadine in the bottom, which was nice. So just like a, I would say just a little bit more, maybe a second bar spoon of grenadine to round it out after you've shaken the rest of the cocktail. Again, that grenadine is meant to finish the cocktail, not be shaked into the cocktail. So very tasty. My back half beer is one way out from Drecker Brewing Company and Half Brothers, and it is so good. It's so delicious. It's an IPA. It's classic in most of the ways that you would expect with most of the hops that I love. So hard to beat. Perfect. Cool. All right. With that, let's go into the Barbarians at the Gate. We pick up with Jazal while he's on a run, and the tedium of that run brings him back to the thoughts of war and Artie, while his feet pound pavement. Say one thing for Joe Abercrombie. He totally nailed the uncomfortable run swelling. Anyway, Giselle continues to elaborate on how things are going between West and he since he was appointed, and the complication of Artie lurking between them all the while. And man, despite a, despite a lot of shifting, he's still got that er- aristocratic assholeness in him, um, on the whole. Yeah, I mean, like I, like I talked about before, I'm kind of okay with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I like this slow progression. I like these these baby steps that he's taking. Um, as long as he changes, as long right. as he actually ends up changing. Yeah, I, I think I think it'll end up in a good place. I hope mm-hmm. it does, but I think it will. Fuck running though, like <laughs> generally, I, I I don't think I hate running as much as some people do, but. There, there is a headspace you definitely have to be able to get into in order to enjoy running. Fair. My, my follow-up question for you. Have you ever had that sort of softy swelling while running? It's the worst. There is actually nothing worse. Not while running. No. There are many things worse. Oh, my God. It is the toughest thing to run with in any condition it's just like brutal i think the farthest i've ever run is like a 10k for earth day or something well he's not talking about distance no i know but like i i I haven't it's i I don't think it's a distance thing regularly enough to like really sure sure. aggravate 
fair myself. Enough. Fair enough. Aggravate yourself, meaning like think to an attractive woman you're pining after while you're running. I'm very, it's just so funny to me. Oh, you're not talking about like physical swelling. No, this is him oh, getting oh, a hard fuck. on while he's running. Oh, fuck. Okay. I understand what you're talking about now. I yeah. had it while swimming, which is way more, <laughs> way more uncomfortable because you're in a speedo. Oh my god! And that's also bad. It's just different. <laughs> it's, I think worse. I think that sounds worse. I don't think so. I, I think it's only worse when you get out of the water. But you know, I for some reason, like, for whatever fucking reason, I thought you were talking about oh, like man. ankles, and I just didn't no, no. remember him talking about like ankles. <laughs> I was being but super no, his fucking coy. boner. Yeah, I was being no. coy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> I spit. I drool. I like, I like reacted so <laughs> viscerally. That it was good. You've had it, it while swimming too. Don't lie. I, I, I haven't, I, I don't think I ever had while swimming. I have while running though. Multiple times. Okay. I, I can definitely, definitely like, I forgot about this fully. And I went, I know exactly what that feels like. Wow. 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 And it's, it's, I think he gave it like a weight that makes it seem like it's difficult and uncomfortable, but I think it is twice as difficult and uncomfortable as he is saying. I believe it. Yep. Yeah. That was my impression (laughs) at the very least. What a thing to tuck into the novel. You know what I mean though? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Oh, oh funny. Okay. So anyway, continuing onward. For the practice bout between West and Jazal, many of the close council attend to watch the little shit fight against the major. And it's quite the showing on Jazal's part. His dedication, maybe to Glockta's chagrin, has shifted, as has his mood about doing the work. He dispatches him easily and is quickly confronted by the whole crowd, offered positions, and regarded well by the crown prince all the while quickly turning from Artie, unable to confront her. This is sort of a big thing that I'm summarizing all at once, but I'm curious on sort of where you landed in your thoughts. Yeah, I think we we touched on it a little bit before, but I think this is it's hard to say evidence of, but I, I think this, in my mind, backs up the idea that Glockta's internal monologue is not necessarily in line with his actual feelings. I I don't really get the impression that he's upset that Jazal is taking this seriously now. I, I I think there's a decent amount of jealousy there in in the fact that he's in a position where he can be doing this and just and and Glockta used to be able to do this. But I feel like those sort of daydreams of misfortune befalling Jazal are insincere maybe uh or or at the very least fleeting and and raw emotion immediate emotion as opposed to actual like measured feelings i don't know how to put that to concise wording yet but it 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 just feels like his internal monologue is not necessarily in line perfectly with uh his his feelings but getting back to jazal himself that near confrontation with Artie was so bad. It that sucked. <laughs> that sucked so much. That was so yeah. so rough. I remember 
being in like high school and this isn't this isn't the same this is in no way the same situation but like approaching a girl that i had a crush on and like trying to ask her out and just fumbling the fucking ball and and like walking away as fast as possible like abandoning the entire script and going away like it, that that feeling sucks so much uh but this this feels even worse than that of like i'm not even like she's she's talking to me and i am absolutely ignoring what's going on and turning around and walking away without saying a word to her like ah fuck man god that sucks i i love that you had that reaction because i also viscerally identify with this this is like it it is both it is both his like innate reaction that feels like very pure and like high school adjacent or even middle school adjacent like you're saying it's very adolescent i would say to summarize it in a single word but there is something to this that it's like i don't know if it's a hundred percent just that as so much as it is being unable to reckon simultaneously with what he's promised to west and his desires and his like accomplishments it just summarizes itself and that sort of like adolescent grunting feeling i don't know it just feels like like it's it's in line with that sort of type of feeling i know it's different oh entirely yeah yeah no i i'm I'm 100 percent with you there i'm just more trying to get to like you know the heart of that thing which is just like (laughs) with you so we did you have any thoughts on sort of the the whole closed council showing up here and sort of anyone else that was that was present for this part of like the practiced contest kind of in a way I mean, it, no immediate thoughts, but just the uh, realization that Jazal is maybe much more important or is, is part of a much more important family, I think is probably the better read on it than I was even considering. Uh, or the contest was more heavily considered. Like, those are the That's know, fair too. realities. Because they they all did sort of seem to have an intimate knowledge of his rival, so they probably do something Remmer similar Dan for, for yeah. him. Yeah, so so that's that's a good read on it too. This this contest is heavier weighted than I had considered. Also, so yeah, one of those two. Sure, I dig that. We then come to, skipping a little bit later, to guard duty at the South Gate as Jazal is met once again by Yaru Sulfur and his master finally makes an appearance and rec- he recognizes Baez because of his familiarity with the statue on the King's Way. What did you think of this initial confrontation with both Yoru, uh, the, the crazy old man as he's kind of dubbed him, or the crazy man, and then subsequently Baez? And more to talk about Logan in a moment, but what did you think? Yoru is always going to be, or I hope he's always going to be, a wonderful welcome presence. I love Yoru. Yoru's (laughs) great. He's Um, kind of just the same and warm. Yeah, exactly. And Pacey does a great job of bringing him to... to... Pacey's Yoru is so lovely. Yeah. (laughs) He's such an agreeable character. Like, Uh oh yes, my master is coming. And it's just this sort of like... Off kilter, yeah, love mm-hmm. it. But 
I think it's totally understandable for Jazal or anybody, even having seen Baez's statue and recognizing the similarities and the the relation between them. Uh, and also his chubbier. Yeah, well, yeah. But being unconvinced that this is Baez, like, we get later, like, I, I, I don't think we get Baez's age until later on in this section, but like, he hasn't been here for a couple hundred years. Yeah, I, that's hard to, hard to just believe at face value that a square several yeah. hundred year old wizard is truly the man walking up to your gate. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've heard about the chair that was held for the first of the Magi and the Council previously, right? We heard about that, I think, in week one even. Might have been week two. But to see it, like, literalized in some way where it's like, that's got to be flabbergasting for them. You know, we'll get yeah. to that next, I guess. But, like, that concept that this man is even alive, it was. It felt like it was more, like, held in, you know, respect yeah, for the Magi. Reverent. Not, yeah, right. Not for any other reason. Mm-hmm. It was tradition. Mm-hmm. But then we move to the North Man accompanying him, of whom he describes as, never had he seen such a brutish-looking man. Even Fenris the Feared had seemed civilized by comparison. His face was a whipped back, crisscrossed with ragged scars. His nose was bent, pointing off a little sideways. One ear had a big notch out of it. One eye seemed a touch higher than the other, surrounded by a crescent-shaped wound. His whole face, in fact, was slightly beaten, broken, lopsided, like that of a prize fighter who has fought a few bouts too many. And this depiction of Logan is something else. Yeah, it's it's brutal. That's a, that's a brutal description. <laughs> I wasn't expecting yeah. quite so much damage to his face and neck and body and everything in general. This is a monster man. And <laughs> now... <laughs> I can't imagine him as anything other than the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> I even sent you today because we're no, building I, a couple I, of I, memes. I know. No, it's it's just very funny. I I get it. I get exactly what you're saying. But I did send you literally today because we've we've hit the point now. We've passed the point, I should say, uh, that the original graphic novel covers, and so. You know, it feels it just felt relevant to like be able to be willing to break that boundary in some of these character descriptions and give you pictures. But yeah, yeah, there's one of Logan that I'm hanging on to yet until the very end of this from an artist of who just re-rendered the entirety. And man, there there are like collectors of editions of books that I want. I have a wonderful broken binding collector's edition of this book set, but there is this. Edition, I sent you a photo from it. I forget which one. I sent you one photo from it from Tommy Arnold, the artist, today, yesterday, recently. And it is just remarkable what the man did, but in particular, oh, of Guslav. I sent you the photo of Guslav, right? By Tommy Arnold, who also did the art for Gideon the Ninth and Harrow and that okay. series, in addition to a number of others. But he has this wicked depiction of Logan that we haven't quite hit yet that I can't wait to share with you, but there is no like single collector's item that I've ever done. That one art piece makes me want to like get that or like, I want to frame it on a wall or something. Cause it is mm. just so remarkable for one of my favorite characters. It's oh God, such a good depiction. Awesome. 
Yeah. So shout out to Tommy Arnold. Shout out to Joe Abercrombie for doing this whole thing. Shout out to Stephen Pacey. The what the fuck? One of the best book series ever. Anyway, I'll try to continue. The depiction of Logan, though, is just nuts, right? Especially as I was mentioning earlier, like the fact that we don't really know or like understand exactly what Logan looks like because we're only seeing him from his own perspective and he doesn't ever like look in water or anything like that. So we never see a reflection. We're left with an understanding that at the most that like he is a tall man, he's got a notched ear, which we do hear from other characters. He's missing a finger. They're just sort of like all these assembled details, but to hear it described by someone else is some one more terrifying than arguably the most terrifying character we've seen. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. No kidding. But Logan's just our, just our suave dude. I don't know if suave's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, suave's, he's he's suave's great. Wrong. He's great. He's yeah. our boy. Logan's our boy. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. <laughs> We've only given it to Giselle so far. I'm gonna say Logan's our boy. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So after disarming himself, Logan asks a fairly simple question, and maybe even seems to understand the language. And Giselle, frankly embarrassing for himself, treats him simply right off the bat as like negatively as though he doesn't understand the language and this motley group without Giselle then proceeds to the close council for their meeting and it's it's just such a weird confrontation because Giselle once again you know I don't know he presents himself <laughs> as such a dick yeah, yeah he's such a such an idiot yeah but yeah. as always and the silver lining in this is Stephen Pacey's like performance within this section of how he speaks to logan very well done Mm -hmm. but such a fucking dick yeah yeah he is just a little bit of an asshole he doesn't perfectly get it but that's i mean i the thing that jades me the most to this reaction from giselle is mostly just the fact that he speaks slowly especially as you read it there's periods between yeah it's like this pronounced enunciation and then logan responds normally in the tongue or tone and it's just he is physically reacting to the cover of the book not the contents of the book which i think sums up giselle yeah that sums up entirely giselle pretty well yeah (laughs) yeah he's reckoning with understanding the contents of a person not the presentation which is also the union that gets back to the like close in the window conversation that happened before and sort of the pretense even why they're dressed up to begin with here. Yeah. I do appreciate as well that Logan says you can't have too many and you can't have too many knives and then pulls out five knives in addition to his sword that he gives. <laughs> He's got one in his boot, one in his sleeve, two behind him, one on his high back. Like dude's got so many fucking knives. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. good. It's good. All right. Let's move on to the next chapter next. We return to Glockta, catching wind that the Archlector is really, really damn good at his job as he helped manipulate catching and planting the Mercers through his secretary, and that even Glockta was a pawn in that. In addition, his old friend Goyle from Angland is going to be returning, and he is not pleased in that. This all happens in a conversation with the Archlector, Archlector as he reveals sort of the reality of what happened, or of the point of part one from Glockta's perspective. What do you make of this sort of revelation well I, I liked your breakdown of him being was a pawn definitely not a pawn anymore right like he's he's yeah, for no sure, longer for sure no he's he's good 
he's good yeah. now. Like he knows we, he's we in. got yeah. through that. He's not being used for any ulterior motives anymore. He's yeah. To, to that point, Arch Lecter Salt proves that he's so fucking good at what he does by saying your read of K line was jaded and like calls him out for his read of yeah. K line for you know similar reasons, right? Like yeah, it's he's like you were you were too jaded. You should have been impressive. or you were jaded in the wrong way. Yeah, but also I think the. The other read on that is too trusting of the word of the Archlector because he mm-hmm. he narrowed in on K-Line because the Archlector said he was incredibly confident in the loyalty of his staff. So that, that allowed or that prompted Glockta to disregard them as suspects. So like Jaded, yes, but also hopefully he takes it he takes that lesson as like I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what lesson the Arch Lecter is trying to to put forward there. Don't trust anybody, including me. But that doesn't feel in line with him. I don't know. Does that track? Like that's the only reason he narrowed in on K line. Yeah, he's he's trying to make sense of why Glockta makes decisions, I think. I think that's why I like I read or how I read it at the very least is it's like this is how you're parsing things and I want you to have an understanding that you could do better, my son. You know, and he's kind of like giving yeah. him like a little bit of a that's a little bit too close. He's not quite that close. He's a little bit more put off, but yeah. I I just don't see him as the kind of person would be like, "Hey, I'm I'm going to lie to you and you need to be or I'm, I'm not going to be entirely truthful and you need to be cognizant of that. Like, he seems to be the kind of person that would want Glockta to be wrapped around his finger. He, I think he kind of wants, hmm, that's interesting. I think he kind of wants Glockta to figure it out. Like, I think he hopes that he does. Pardon me, the, this brings in the question of Goyle, right, from yeah. England. Goyle was previously in Glockta's position. Was he pushed away potentially because he understood the way that Salt behaves or for not pushed away, quote, he was given a promotion elsewhere, you know, regional director of torture in Angland. But, <laughs> you know, God, it's crazy to think about it that way. But like given a promotion elsewhere and then brought back in for a higher promotion. I'm just curious on your thoughts or your read. Again, it's organizational structure. It's some of those things. But as you're saying about what he wants from someone. It feels like he's trying to get something out of Glockta. Yeah. But is that the goal? I don't know. Because, like, it... it, Yeah. He seems to understand the disposition. Like, Mm -hmm. Goyle seems to genuinely enjoy just torturing people. Like, not for the... Not for the purpose... Like, not for the end game, but for the actual action of it. And... Glockta understands that. Salt seems to understand that. And it feels like an intentional, like, let's push this antagonistic sort of relationship towards each other. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I, I am confused by Salt. Okay. He, he I mean- feels very intelligent and feels like a mastermind, but doesn't necessarily feel feel like a mentor yet for Glockta. 
Like it still feels like Glockta is a game piece. It's like an adversarial mentor. Yeah, yeah. I, I get. I'm totally with you. He definitely to get back to the core point that you initiated was a pawn. He definitely still is a pawn. Mm-hmm. But he's trying to give him knowledge that he could be more than a pawn. Maybe, maybe. like if he tried. Yeah. It's it's interesting to compare comparing like Archlector Salt versus Veruz. Veruz is very direct with his coaching. Obviously, that's his entire method. We could even bring Burr into this in the way that he encourages people. Salt is much more manipulative than either of them are. Yeah. With good me, uh, I mean, not good means. I shouldn't say good means, but like with intended means and intended results. Yeah. He is he, he's, good at his job. He's intentional for sure. Yeah. It's just sussing out those motivations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. Uh, I, I love the line as well. It's, it's such a small thing. Um, inside of this conversation where uh it's it's stated turn a merchant over and there's always a banker underneath and it's such a <laughs> it's such a small thing <laughs> like what do you mean like i think this is salt talking to talking back to glockta but he's like of course there's a banker underneath a merchant they need a way to afford things because they can't afford them on their own yeah and it's just it's very straightforward but it's also dismissive insightful yeah yeah those sneaky, sneaky fucking bastards always hiding under the Mercers. Mm-hmm. The well, I think it's the other way. I mean, no I, I think you're right. But what? But my suggestion is that the Mercers are the merchant or are the like parasites, and the bankers are the, you know, cash flow positive organization. Yeah, obviously. So we then get to Glockta's path going forward, and what he's going to be doing next. His goal is going to be to inspect Baez and his company, including his apprentice, and to follow them carefully. Assault really isn't sure what to make of Baez outside of the fact that he believes him to not be the real McCoy. This is interesting because it imparts knowledge on us as to the way that that meeting went. Yeah, yes and no. I don't know because I'm not entirely sure how to think about this because my gut my gut is telling me that Salt does believe that this is Bias, but doesn't want Bias to take the throw or like take the chair, simply because we know that Salt is vying for power within the cult close council, and this upsets mm-hmm. that power. But at the same time, I am untrusting of Salt in general, and any like I, I'm going to like I know for sure that I'm going to have a hard time believing anything that he says at face value. I don't know what to think of it. Like I, I could, it, it feels like a convenient story to put on. Like I don't believe this is the real guy. Prove that he's not, and and that's the operative sort of phrase of prove that he's not, knowing how the inquisition inquisition operates like find something that can plausibly be used as proof that this is not who we're actually talking to and we'll dismantle it from there bureaucratically but i my my gut tells me that salt truly does believe that this is bias and is threatened by the existence of bias within the close council hmm. yeah I think that that's why he's reacting, right, by and yeah. large? Yeah. Like, he is, he's absolutely... I kind of think of, like, Salt as a bit of a, a coiled snake or a coiled serpent. He's willing to hiss out in a number of directions to control the crowd around him, but rarely will he actually strike 
only if it means actually protecting himself. And right. this feels like he's trying to figure out if he should strike or not, uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. He feel he feels right. intelligent enough to not dismiss this as a charlatan right away. Like I don't think he would put Glockta on the case if that was if that was his true belief. If he didn't have some serious question. Yeah. Right. And a part of this chapter, I think part of the magic of this chapter too is I think that he's imparting the belief that Arch Lecter Salt, he, Trevor Crombie, is giving us this belief that like he's more capable than we might have read him as initially. We've seen a lot of this bureaucracy be incompetent. Salt is not incompetent. Right. So this kind of leads you in a direction in a different way. So yeah. All right. Well, we've got a little bit more to talk about with uh, Baez at the very end here. But before we get there, we have to resume with our conversation between our two unlikely compatriots, Yulwei and Pharaoh. And they are on their quest towards safety as Pharaoh is once again a mirage of a young boy, despite being strapped with weapons and like in front of this guard. There's an interesting note on xenophobic language as they're trying to escape here between war-torn countries. Xenophobic might not be the right term, but just to give it some sort of form of context, xenophobic is universal, I think, but you could get more specific. Referring to the members of the union as the pinks and sort of this nomenclature given to them, Yulwe, unlike Baez, though, doesn't claim any sort of superiority as a magi, but instead sort of just spreads this line between unsuspecting and more than grandiose as far as it goes. I mean, there's a lot happening in the beginning of this as we approach the docks. I'm curious as to as to your thoughts on magic, Yulwe, the magi, and yeah. and the differences between the Empire and the Union. Well, I think the difference between Yulwe and Baez is pretty dark. It, their focuses very much match their personalities. Bayer being the representative sort of element of Baez, being this powerful, outspoken, elemental force, whereas Yolwe's focus seems to be much more subdued and unassuming and allowing him to go about undetected entirely. And like their their dispositions very much match their focuses. And I think it's kind of a chicken and egg situation with both of them, probably, in that their natural dispositions probably push them towards focusing on certain certain realms of magic and and that focus exacerbated those personality traits like it, they they fed off of each other in that way um i'm guessing totally entirely um but yeah they they are very starkly different people and the, those powers definitely match their personalities it it is interesting that the personality also matches the power in a unique way that almost i don't want to this feels like way too uh, way too niche of a, a meme in some ways but like it's almost power ranger-esque in a way where it's like <laughs> ah yes i am a quiet man and therefore i am quiet and able to keep people quiet and like manipulate people's perception in some ways 
but yeah mm-hmm. there's some things like that totally cool all right from there that said their path that they were taking is a treacherous one but not one that pharaoh doesn't resist she seems really good at resisting, actually. This seems like her whole kind of thing is like pushing against the bounds because, of course, she's been bound for so long. But going through Degaska into a godless country seems to be crossing more than one emotional, cultural, religious line for her. But Yulwe, upon seeing the ship, sees the threat of Gurkle very clearly and understands that he must go and form other ships as soon as possible. I just want some fantasy pirate shit. So I'm all for this. <laughs> I know it's not like a long distance that they have to travel by boat, but I am very excited for it because we, we've we've seen Baez and Kwai and Logan on a boat, but barely. I, I want some boat shit. Yeah, boat shit time. Boat shit time. I, I'm not going to lie to you, PJ. I love to ensure that expectations are on the correct route, but this is not going to be your pirate fantasy that I would love to Damn indulge okay. on you That's fine. and give you, I'm sure it'll give you still space be fun. and time. We both love Critical Role Campaign 2. Partially, at the very least, I think, because we love the pirate fantasy. And maybe we'll read one of those books one day. Not the Critical Role books, but a pirate fantasy. But this is this initial trilogy is not it. We but already did. We read Tress. Tress does have pirate fantasy in it. You're right. I, I feel... Thank you for giving in to that reward i'm still struck we then come to the confrontation with the slaves of course of whom are being traded by the empire and the slavers here and i want to say that one of the things that i really enjoy about pharaoh is how she's actively out to do the right thing compared to a number of our characters that we've read so far of whom are self-interested sometimes in the right ways some way sometimes in the wrong ways but she doesn't even consider the consequences and she's foolhardy through these choices and though they may be otherwise in the way that she makes them. It is really only because of Yule way that she doesn't walk that path of violence to try to free these slaves and kill the three guards and then the three more that might come. But I find it commendable from a character standpoint, even though she doesn't actually follow through because in any other circumstance, it's clear that she would have. Yeah. Her convictions are very, very, very strong. It's nice to see that, like between her and Logan, we have these these tough, rough, violent characters with really pure, good hearts and and convictions that guide them, and it, it's it's great to see. It's really nice to see. Yeah, and I, I mean, like pure hearts, definitely in line. For me, the pure heart is definitely a thing. I'm trying to downplay that. But it's it's more that like she has like a damn the consequences vibe totally. about her. Right. Yeah. Like do the right thing, damn the consequences. Damn and the everyone self. Everyone else is so like, she, damn she's the self. selfless. Yeah. And that is so refreshing in many ways. Like there, there's something to there's something to Logan too, though that is similar but not the same, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's some like nice contrasting differences from a com- character com- perspective. So that's that's really all that I'm trying yeah. to like pick out a little it, bit. It feels scat. like 
Yule way, his, his the way that he's going to be able to motivate her going forward is not self preservation, but how much more good could you do if you mm. didn't take this immediate course of action? Right, and and to get to that point. Yulway is at a difficult impasse because he actually almost feels kind of frustrated with her. He says, is there anything but killing in you, Pharaoh? And she responds with, there used to be, but they whip it out of you. They whip un- you until you're sure that there's nothing left. And he apologizes and says, I'm sorry, Pharaoh. Sorry for you and sorry for them, but it's better than death. And she whispers to herself, the same. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with either of them. I mean, I mean, hard to disagree with Pharaoh here, but I, I think it's, I think that's downplaying it almost. Like, it feels like, in my mind, that torture like this would be even worse. Than yeah, death. she, I, I find something comforting in her comparing it to death directly versus mm. saying that it's worse than death. I think that there's something there that says that, like, it's about suffering in increments, not suffering in totality. Yeah. You're suffering. And, and that's an interesting distinction, right? Like, and so that's why I find Pharaoh's perspective very unique in this moment is like it, it compares pain in a very different way. Yeah. Um, to and any I, other character I think that we've talked I think about. it's beyond just pain. I, yeah, I'm yeah. summing no, it up. No, I, pain, I, I didn't yeah. mean to do that as a correction to yours but in addition like i I think it goes farther than that Mm -hmm. there's there's a humanity lost and damage done yeah yeah and especially can't wait to get into this a little bit more as we continue forward but especially when you get some comparisons to glockta and you begin to like bring their their perspectives into focus of like would Glock to actually be better off dead from his own, per- like not from necessarily his perspective, but from like the net pain that he experiences. Mm-hmm. That's tough to say. I mean, I, and I think that there's the other side of that of like, is she wrong in the fact that living and doing something like Glock is doing is actually better a for society, but b also, you know, on the behalf of oneself. I don't know. Tough. Yeah. Tough. Totally. That's to me. That is one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk about the series is some of those philosophical, moral, and ethical, you know, conflicts to break down. Totally. Yay. Any other thoughts on that quote? Uh, I don't think so. I, I do also want to add in here. I feel like this also poses questions of the Magi, though, and their nature in a way. Like, what would compel someone to such a deep understanding of the world to think in, like, one particular way? And especially with Yule Wei saying that it's better than death. Is that because of his sort of, like, long view perspective of knowledge and, like, what you could potentially attain? Like, is there something else there from yeah. from a Magi's perspective versus, like, what we'll say is a conventional human's perspective? I think, uh, assuming he's in the same boat as Baez with with such a long life i think individual points in time even if they're long like years stretching yeah start to lose their gravity and mm-hmm. and you start seeing things from more of a an overall perspective and 
that goes well beyond what a normal human can even comprehend with that timeline, if that makes sense. Well, it, it definitely does. But that's sort of like a... That's a normalcy for... I guess what I'm trying to like pick at here to some degree... I, I understand exactly what you're saying. The The question at the heart that I'm trying to like pick at to some degree is like the Magi have an extended view of the world, right? And so like life seems better because their life is longer. Like elves, like let's let's like hearken this back to like classical fantasy as we might define it. Like elves would believe that a segment of their life of torture would be better than death in some regard. Because they get to continue to live and they've got a long life in front of them. They've got thousands of years of potential. But someone of whom has a shorter view is in a very different status. Yeah. So I I guess you'd have to liken it. You'd have to normalize their lifespan and the amount of time that they're spending. And I, I don't think they're I, I don't think Yulwe is doing that properly here. So, I think he's seeing it as, like, this flash in the pan of a little bit of torture for a couple days in relation to, like, his life is is tolerable. And there's so much more that you'll experience and that, that will feel less impactful. Whereas Glockta, if he was... It, for example, I, I think he was tortured for like five years or eight years or something like that. Two to three years. Yeah. Was that Between it? two okay. and three years. Still, okay. If it's three years, he's like 30 years old. It's 10% of his life. Right. And if Yul weighs a thousand years old, that's a hundred years of torture. I don't know how old. I like. I have no fucking idea. No, no, no I, I know. Just to I, get I'm, that I'm scale, with you. like I'm with you. I, I think. I think yeah. there's a disconnect in just understanding the amount of time that suffering is taking place. But does I? I'm with you. I'm with you on the perspective, and this is something that I would be that I would be very focused on as we were talking about, like the Lord of the Rings. But is like is suffering relative to the years that you're experiencing? Yeah, so I just trying to draw into the like whole conflict on time and age and sort of the the like I don't know. There's this concept, especially in like Tolkien mythology, of which you've actually taken a class on, which is kind of a fun a fun part of this whole aspect of conversation. Is like the idea of the ageless versus the aged, and the way that like time changes around those folks and people. And so I can't help but feel like Yulwe's perspective is tainted by the fact that he is maybe not ageless, but has so many more centuries or decades to live that he could exist through torture. But then there's also the dichotomy of maybe saying that just existence is better than the suffering that you experience in the end. There, there yeah. are conflicting moral and ethical ideas there. Or his his opinion on death is so much more extreme than... A, a mortal's or a normal human's idea of death because of how much more that he gets gets to experience and like i i am i am tackling this argument i, I at a phys, like at a uh, philosophical sort of perspective of somebody who does not understand the core like ways that 
these magi belong to the world. Um, so I, I feel a little bit at a dis- disadvantage here, and I, I don't think it's really an argument. I think we're pretty. But even the Vanir aren't aren't even that well explained. No, I, you know, neither are the Anir. That's you know. true. But like, I don't think we're really arguing here. I guess no, no, no. Is, is Wait, it's, it's a from. conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. But <sighs> the more I think about it, the more that the disconnect might be on the understanding of death and if if pharaoh sees this torture where the ending of life as death yeah itself i could see that as being the loss of humanity and if yalway doesn't understand what humanity is to begin with potentially that that could be the reasoning for that disconnect I do find it. I I'm totally with you on that front because it's like where where does life ended begin and like you being able to live your life and like outlive certain things could like tragedy tuck into the rear view, you know, after thirty years of emotional healing and in a longevity life of a thousand years. But I do find that whole picture, like you're saying, fascinating. On top of that, to talk just a little bit about Joe. And sort of this, Yulway being so close to Yahweh is yeah. like such a like Jewish and and Christian touchstone. So I'm like, that's that's a fascinating, maybe incidental call. I don't know. What do you I was, what do you think? About, I was like, going to bring it up at some point. All right, all right. good, good, good. It good. It, yeah. it feels too close to be coincidental. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. Especially with all these sort of like existential questions that we're raising to ourselves too while we're walking through this. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go into sore thumb, our final chapter of the week. We end our week with Logan again, this time peering out over the view that leaves him feeling different, almost shaped by his surroundings in some ways. He has a conversation with Kwai about the beauty of it all, but he doesn't see the beauty of the city on the whole. He's frightened almost at once by his future of this industrious city and how this is this is like significantly different than his way of life and also what this could mean for his way of life in the future. Could this stretch to the north? Like there are many questions begged here. I can't blame him, I guess, for that line of thinking. I get it. It's a it's a culture shock, totally. I think he does start to see a little bit of the beauty as he explores on his own later on, though. I I, I don't know if he'd consider it beauty, but uh, at the very least, mm. he there's awe inspired within him through exploring. That awe is fear, but yeah, you're right. It's fear, right. but it's it not. Awe. It's not all fear, though. Like the the pipes underground. It's like it's not a total understanding of it, but it's it's awe without being fear. I think. I think he's a little bit more afraid than you're saying. I, I wouldn't no, call I, it. I, I don't. I, I don't mean to downplay it's the fear more, it's of more it. Like but like the unknown, it's not. It's not right? totally. It's not just fear. Like there is mm-hmm. curiosity, and there he, yes. he refers to right. them as mysteries to be solved. As he's yep. going out and exploring. So it's 
It's something to be conquered. And yes, fear is a very present emotion, but I, I don't think it's all encompassing in what he's feeling. Yeah. That's that's fair. And especially as he chooses to venture forth and inspect his surroundings with Malachus sat back the tower changed to studies by Baez. He starts joking. Baez mean What's up? He starts joking with people. Like like he he's starting oh, to yeah. fall into a groove. He's, like Yeah. He gets people. There's nothing about like Logan that says that he doesn't get people for sure. I'm with you on that front. And also he like he has an understanding of the way and why this thing was built. He just doesn't like it immediately. He's immediately repelled by the sort of, I, I don't want to call him like agoraphobic because that's not anywhere near close, but it almost feels like in this moment he's reacting agoraphobically because he doesn't understand what's outside. So he's shutting him. He kind of feels like he wants to shut himself into a room. Mm-hmm. He chooses not to naturally. Yeah. Because he's a bold person. So he's but, willing to push past that. I mean, if you're quiet, it's because of the smell, right? Like, it's clearly, it's just the smell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Quiet. Quiet is like, <laughs> fuck this place. It stinks. And, like, even <laughs> in the previous chapter with Logan, Logan was like, this place, like, goes from, like, good to bad to good as smells go, which is how he's reading it for the most part before, mm-hmm. you know, this solid read. So. Yeah. Baez, meanwhile, dives into while they're sitting out here on the balcony talking in the balcony without a railing, I think, talking about sort of the the whole view of the city, how this city has grown around the black tower of the house of the maker, this sort of indefinable building that spirals up into the sky forever and his impact that he had on building this city on the whole. I, I have to ask, and you've posited it a couple of times over the course of the episode and said that you want to get to it where's your head at with this heady magi this is Baez's house like you think so yeah i think so i i really think so i i if he's not he's himself he is a he's a fraction of the maker Mm. in a way like i don't know it, it just it seems like there's something deeper pj do you want to make that a bet yeah Okay. I'm going to take this down precisely as I'm wondering if he's the maker himself. If he's not the maker himself, he's a fraction of the maker. You down with that? Yep, I'm down with that. I'm good with that loosey-goosey bet. Yeah, it's a little loosey-goosey. It's a little loosey-goosey. The story's loosey-goosey. This isn't hard magic, you know? Mm. So, I'll take a loosey-goosey. It's a soft answer. (laughs) Yeah, we agree on strays, you know, but on, on the whole, to get back to the, the point of the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think there is a question to be asked about like his involvement. But do you think that it's more on the house of the maker side of things? Or do you think that he has had some other sort of involvement over time? Do you believe the man as a part of like history of the city? He felt so sent like at least his his own perspective of it. He he said something along the lines of I gave this to them. Like mm. He 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 seemed to have taken yes. ownership yeah. in the origin of this city in general, and his age, like you'd mentioned earlier. Yeah, like he he both owned sort of the original shape, which I think he said something along the lines of like a bunch of huts huddled around the building of the maker, and now it's sort of been his larger vision that's mm-hmm. been extracted upon the union. Yeah. How much do you think that's real or otherwise or like what's? Oh, I think it's real. I don't necessarily think that's how he first came upon it. 
I think that's mm. how he inherited Rhett in some way. I think that's how he left it. Sure. Okay. Like, I remember, I remember this city when it was just... It was a couple of square blocks on the back foot of fucking Manhattan Island. And yeah, now we got but that doesn't mean Brooklyn that was the and first Queens. way that you interacted yeah, right. with it, you know? Like, right. People yeah. lived on Queens before Queens became Queens into Manhattan and mm-hmm. the city on the whole. Yeah, right. That idea. I get it. Yeah. I think he's being, cool. like I said, a little bit intentionally elusive with how important he was to the city, but that felt like an outburst and that felt like a, a little bit of a showing his hand more than he meant to. Mm. Yeah. Um, he definitely gets defensive. I would say with, with Logan here, yeah, which is not traditionally Baez's way either, which is odd for him. I, I, he says, I gave them this. I gave them freedom, and this is the thanks I get? The scorn of clerks, of swollen-headed old errand boys? A trip <laughs> a trip down into suspicion and madness below began to seem like a merciful release. And that's, that's a reflection from Logan. I this. gave them freedom. Yeah. Is such a bold thing to proclaim for yourself. <laughs> and also for a people, you know. Yeah, for for like I don't even think George Washington would have said that. You know what no, I mean? Like Exactly. Yeah. And I don't yeah, think he's right. lying about it. And I don't think he's being right. hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. I think he's being truthful. Spiteful, but truthful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else on good old Baez? I don't know. No, not right now. Before we get to the end? Cool. We head to Logan wandering around the city, and he sees the stage for Giselle's contest being built, notes that the soldiers that he finds are better among the trained that seem to be the higher ranking, um, but still weaker than expected, and walks past both the running Giselle, the guard, and the statue of the maker, noting the similarity that Baez has gained some weight since his statue was carved. (laughs) He's also, he also has a quick flash in the pan conversation with Artie. Do you have any thoughts on anything that Logan sees or notices on his trip through the city? I think this chapter, this section in general, but this chapter as a whole really highlights the comedy that Joe Allen Joe is, is able so to. Joe is so fucking funny. We don't talk enough about his comedy. You're totally right. It's so right. good. But like, this is dense in it. We get the sort of stanza for sitting <laughs> a quandary. <laughs> That yep. Logan comes across. Um, his charming ability to horrify anybody that he's trying to flirt with. The mm-hmm. magic's still there. Um, <laughs> right. He's, you know, doing, like, he's doing exactly what he expected. It's so yeah. good. I just, in general, I love Logan's curiosity and his his seemingly insatiable need to understand the terrain that he's found himself in and that terrain is unnatural here whereas it would have been a landscape or a mountainscape or whatever it is and this is this is a city so he needs to go scout he needs to to immerse himself in prerogatives yeah i love that i especially appreciate your consideration for each of the different beats here because like a lot of 
it's so hard to under like I feel like we do underplay as a part of this podcast because we focus on the dramatic. I do try to bring in the the comedic upon time, and obviously you do as you recognize things and find them funny. But like, it's really easy to skip over how fucking funny of a writer Joe Abercrombie is, and every chapter, despite being heavy in some way, has a moment of levity or yeah. two. Like even I mean, like we think to the brutality of next and the way that, that chapter goes. There's Frost knocking down the door after Jalen Horman yells through. And like, that's funny. And then he goes up the stairs and he does throw the man brutally down the stairs. But it's like, plop, plop, in plop, a funny plop. Way. Do you imagine him going is kind of funny to imagine. It's like, very that's, funny. That's comedic, you know? And I, there's this there's this instinct to be like overly grim and serious. And, you know, Joe Abercrombie's ascribed name is the Lord of Grimdark, of Grimdark fantasy. This Lord of Grimdark. I think what's so good about him, like choosing to pick up that is his that is his title on like Twitter and Instagram and wherever else is that he embraces it, knowing that it's kind of a lie. Like he is yeah. not the Lord of Grimdark. He is like Grimdark comedy, and comedy is not evident enough in a lot of dark fantasy, and like people don't talk about it enough, and that's so important to the series. So anyway. I I would like to challenge that a little bit. And I'm going to do that by making you think about, like, really, really interrogate the idea of an adaptation. Sure. And could you have so much comedy in a visual adaptation of this story and have it come across as compellingly as this as this book does with all the comedy intact you wouldn't film all of the comedy but you would film so for instance let's let's go no, but you're not going to film all the intensity either like you there's going to be cuts but no to, right. to maintain that sort of ratio of comedy do you think you could do that of course i i think that i think that the ratio is the most important thing to do for the first law it has to be comedic and intense at those points okay. and intervals because it is so the comedy is the levity for the seriousness and the direness of the world and and as such i also think that comedy levity is the seriousness is like the relief for the direness of our world right and to put this in terms of chuck polinick we've talked a little bit about this on the show before i think at the very least i have but like he measures things in Strippers and comedians, right? Like that's his measurement as you build up tension in the story. How long do you keep the stripper going? And then how, when do you bring in the comedian? And I think that all you're doing when you bring something from a text form to a visual form is you have to measure it a different ratio. So you bring in different beats. Would we do the frost beating down the door joke and the night being thrown down like comedically bouncing on his neck and whatnot down the stairs no we'd probably do one or the other like we don't need both inside of that scene but we do need one and so i think that that's just the same sort of balance you just need to strike the balance for the medium that makes the most sense but what i think is important about the first law versus something like game of thrones is that it is both incredibly serious and incredibly comedic and so you need to blend those more closely than you might Game of Thrones. Okay. Also, the 
I mean, the first law does not take itself nearly as seriously. So by its innate nature, it lends itself more innately to comedy because that's what it's trying to do. Okay. Yeah. It's not a farce innately, but it does have farcical qualities to it. Because humans fucking silly. That's humans that's are a fucking whole silly. Thing. And not enough media admits that humans are fucking silly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I to to your point. Yes, you do have comedy, but I think that you would I would trust I mean I'd trust Joe Abercrombie to write the story, of course, because that's what he's doing with Best Rip Cold. And I'm so excited for that movie with Rebecca Ferguson leading as Monza Mercada. But I would trust like Craig Mazin to write it because he understands that like thin line between drama and comedy and you need to have both as you move through something mm-hmm. and you can't have both the last of us proves that you can have both that's more drama than comedy and i think this is a little bit more comma than dramedy comedy than drama but okay yeah those lines I, are close and they shift i like that answer it's more complex than i intended to give but here we are now we're here that's okay that's this show yeah, I did want to circle back into the conversation with Artie because it is a very lonely conversation. Artie identifies herself as nobody to right. Logan and Logan gives his own name in a city where no one cares what his name is. And so there's kind of this juxtaposition of he's a fresh face of whom is willing to say his name and she's been here but understands that no one cares who she is. And that's an interesting juxtaposition between characters. I'm curious on your thoughts on Artie's loneliness and all that that looks like. There's a spider on my wall. Yeah, I, I think cut. that's it's 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 sad first and foremost, but I think that's pretty obvious. She, it's it's clear that it's Artie, but that's not mentioned anywhere in the text. She is a stranger in a strange land, like Logan is, but. She refers to this as her home. And I hadn't realized that she had, like, officially moved here. I thought she was visiting. And I know, like, they lost their father. They lost the farm. So, like, yeah, it tracks that she moved here, maybe out of necessity. But, like, I, I hadn't really understood that, like, this wasn't a temporary arrangement for her also to your point logan introduces himself but he he introduces himself as logan not as nine fingers not as as how he's known which maybe may maybe this is getting into the realm of reading too far into things but like just the idea of finding community with somebody with with his own true self as opposed to how he's perceived by people in his in his known area it just felt like a very nice interaction between the two of them despite the somberness of of Artie's character it it is a very nice interaction and i think it is it shows some humanity in logan too you know that is like difficult not difficult to grapple with but like logan is a tough exterior as we've been exposed to through jazal and yet Artie doesn't give a shit 
once again and she's willing to punch through that and talk to him like a person because that's who she is and also who she views any person that she might approach as. And I find that so welcoming on the front of both Artie's character and poor Logan as character in the moment. <laughs> Tough. I, I just, I appreciate it, it. There are so many like small intricacies in the writing. And this is one of them that is so easy to skate over as you're reading through this quickly that I appreciate that we get to take a second because this is a scene that in my initial and even my secondary read, I didn't really fully grip with the fact that this was already like, it's only because we had so much time to like go back and consider and like, think about these things that I sat in it for a moment and went, wait, that's already like, she is a whole person. She's got this whole idea and like her approach to Logan is very different and giving the character that weight, I think is really important to understanding this book and understanding this chunk as a whole. I would hope in an adaptation, no one cuts that unless they mm-hmm. give a different reason for yeah, that so interaction. Too. Yeah. I like that. We then move to Logan himself shortly after leaving Artie, walking into the night afraid with a need to pee. Mm-hmm. We get a quick cut to him in bed, of course, but he heads to what he views as an overcomplicated way to go to the bathroom. He's even thinking about this as like waking up. He doesn't like fully even make it there. He runs into his nightstand and he sees by the window and the wall an apparition of his dead wife, Delphie. The room becomes brighter, steering and otherwise and fully encompassing. And he hears the voice of his dead wife until Baez appears to have thrown the specter out of the room as he covers his eyes from the hug himself from this blinding light and Baez throws her out using high art. Baez quickly denounces this sort of instance, this moment as it being that of an eater, perhaps sent by Kalul. And we quickly get an understanding of what happens when you break the second law, as we understand what an eater is from Malchus Kwai's perspective. This is so much information all at once, PJ, but I would love for you to break down what that looks like, what you think. So first and foremost, if you have to piss as often as Logan does, I I, I think you would also find bathrooms cumbersome and unnecessary. But I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that sort of breakdown of the way that civilized people piss and shit themselves but as far as the eater goes man what the fuck is this thing like i do they always i'm i'm just kind of i'm not asking you these questions but these are the questions i'm asking myself i guess so you don't have to answer i know you can't or won't but do these things take the form of someone that you love as a means of luring you into danger uh is the goal i assume i i assume the goal from the term eater is to consume you i don't know what that means in the in the overall sense of the world of of the word if it's a physical consumption or a spiritual consumption or something in between or something mm. or both i don't know but this thing feels super fucked also kalul Mm-hmm. is is that that's a term we've that, that's a name we've come across before yeah 
Indeed. No, actually, it's not. This is the okay. first time it's been mentioned. I it feels DJ, I made few mistakes. I've made few mistakes in the show. I did inadvertently reference in our last episode, Kalul. My mistake was in acknowledging that you had mentioned the Emperor and saying Kalul's name, and that is not correct. Okay. As a response. That's what I said. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That was on me. I, I fully own that on, on that side of things. Yeah. Sounds good. I've not been called out on it. It doesn't really matter because you don't even know what the fuck any of it is. So. Cool. But it wasn't in the book. It was. No, I explicitly said the name myself because I believe the first time it's mentioned is on this page. Yeah. 298. Yes. So I inadvertently referred to the emperor as Kaul before this point. Okay. Which I hmm. did get a message or two on. I'm sure so we're going to be doing the series for, I mean, a year and a couple of months. I'm going to get a lot of messages on over the course of time. Mm-hmm. But my bad. I did make an error. <laughs> Sounds good. It was me. Whoopsies. Yeah. You yeah. didn't really know. So it's fine. Yeah. But fighting Magi, apparently. That's, not, that's pretty cool, but doesn't bode well for uh, the the puny mortals that we're dealing with. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I'm I'm curious. We've mentioned Lord of the Rings vibes before. Given the nature of the Astari, of which I don't want to fully get into here on the show, but like, do you get Astari vibes between like Kalul, Yulwe? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and their kin. Yeah, this feels uh, greater than the mortal coil. (laughs) All right. I think cool. I'll, I think that's probably sufficient. a good enough summation. All, all I want to say is I all that I would preface with our future encounters, PJ, is that I would not be afraid if you, the actual, I don't want to call you Tolkien scholar among the I'm pair not, of us, but you actually you have experience studying Tolkien, unlike I myself, of whom am now rereading and reapproaching Tolkien for other reasons. So, yeah. I'd say if you have shit you would compare, especially with Tolkien, bruv, I'm shine. You know, way more. You could say <sighs> way more than I could. Maybe. I don't know. My assumption is that. I am not prepared for this right now. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I, fair I'm enough. So, I'm so more, far it's, out. it's more of a mental yeah. thing. I'm, I'm giving you, I'm giving you like a, a post, a no, post stress on the episode. Like, yeah. Connections are being made and like thoughts are, are are being drawn yeah. in certain directions right. for sure. But I they don't need to be solid. I am not not well enough prepared for that. But just I, I think I think you made the most direct comparison earlier with the I mean the Astare are are one thing, but elves in general as right. as humanoid forms on on the planet seem to be a great comparison to with the long life and and whatever else it might entail i don't know i don't know yet there there's just so much mystery here with the magi and what they can actually do and what they mean to the world i think it's important to add in 
what they mean <laughs> yeah. to the end of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, man. I'm, I'm glad to have all those clarifying thoughts. Did you have anything else to round out this episode on? Anything that you thought that we missed? Any any note that you want to bring up on the whole? Again, we're doing these a little bit more generally than we might. We're covering double the ground that we usually would. This is 120 pages, I want to say, in a Kindle. Like, this is nine it's a, twice what yeah. we've done prior. I guess I don't have any commentary on any additional commentary on the content itself, but on the pace that we're taking this, it does feel different than everything else that we've done, but in in a good way, um, or rather not in a bad way. Um, I, I love the depth that we can dive into with like all of our Red Rising coverage and covering like 40 pages at a time. Um, but as I'm becoming a more confident reader, I guess I am really enjoying reading more, <laughs> I guess, between our recordings. So I think your hypothesis was correct in that you, you have effectively turned me into a reader and yay that feels solidified as I'm we can cover more question. than 60 pages a week, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Just great. No, I, I, I don't, I don't mean that in like a fully negative way. I'm, I'm painting that in a more negative way than I intend, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you like, A, obviously you want to like read on your own. You are reading on your own. We aren't, even, we don't talk about it in the show enough. Um, as we're exiting the episode, we don't talk about it enough on the show that you read on your own and that we also have other things going on that you're reading either for or, you know, otherwise choosing to read and do. And ask to read. I mean, every I would say like every couple of weeks, you're like, "What are we doing with the Stormlight Archive? Have we decided like what we're doing?" Can well, I? Can okay, I, like, I have, the first I have all of these. You books have them all staring but, at me. Yeah, yeah. I, they and have I get prominent that. space get on my it. bookshelf, and I've never opened them. And you've yeah, you paid a lot of money for some of those leather bands, so I get it. Yeah, I'm still trying to work out a solution to doing that sooner than later. But all I wanted to like maybe tail end that point with was i'm excited for the future and i hope that we can keep this pace there is a series in my mind that i want to cover that i am trying to figure out how to like maintain pace on and also maintain depth on at the same time so we'll see when we get there Mm -hmm. but needless to say for the immediate future of our plan we've committed to between this and everything else i'm very excited for where we're going and i think we'll keep this pace provided everyone listening enjoys us taking and tackling these things the way that we are but i'm enjoying these episodes by and large quite a bit totally same here they may be a smidge longer but they are better and deep and they cover more things so it's it's better in like a chunk of recording time which also feels better so i don't know Mm -hmm. i mean obviously we took a (laughs) took a break there but we're we're at the four hour mark for recording tonight we so, did 20 minutes of preamble. We yeah, did the, the devil's probably cut. collectively a 15-minute break. There's maybe another five minutes of collective cuts in the episode before like just doing Gap and Umuts. And it's going to be like 2.45. There's no way it's less than... Yeah. Actually, in this one, I'd be shocked if it's under three. No, it's not going to be under three. <sighs> That's terrifying. Cool. All right, well... Red dope with that next week 
we are going to be reading questions through Never Bet Against a Magus, which is a series of chapters that I'm very excited to do. I do want to say at the very end of this here, before we talk about all the other things, we have a couple of people that joined our Patreon as premium sponsored episodes this month, hopping in at the private party tier. So we've got two PJ that we're going to be tackling over the course of March and April, I'm going to say, based on our timing. One by Artificer, we're going to be reading Iron Widow by Jiren Zhe Zhao, which is a very exciting book that I'm I've been wanting to tackle for a while, but, but to be given specific purpose to tackle, I'm stoked to do so. And then there is also Has Been Hotel, which is a season of TV that was released on Amazon Prime that I have roped at this point my brother and sister into participating on that episode in because I liked it and they both fucking loved it when I recommended it to them and it feels like it's a shop heller extravaganza. So we're going to do the Perfect. full a full chat podcast and we're going to have my sister on the show for the first time. Sounds great. That sounds fun. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. So between March and April, expect those episodes inside of the feed as well. But other than that, next week, questions through never bet on a magus against a magus. Intentional that questions is the second time questions has has come up. It might have been. Yep. All right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Beyond that, as I mentioned, uh, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. We really just at this point have two tiers. We've got a standard tier includes our Discord access and all of our premium exports that might be early access to different episodes. That is definitely Devil's Cuts. It is also our Discord access and a number of other kind of random components that plug therein. We give surprises. We also occasionally do like live Roughly, we're shooting for like one live episode a month and then occasional live hangouts with people when we can manage among either video, watching a movie together or doing like a game or something. So mm-hmm. trying to figure that out collectively. But that's the Patreon. Yeah. Social media. We are at Words Whiskey Pod on every everything now. Everything collectively. Yeah. Yeah, basically any social media account that you can think of, Words Whiskey Pod, you'll find us there. If you want to email us, you can email us at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. You can send in some recommendations for cocktail names, and Crossland or I will create a cocktail based on that name like we did today. Yeah, or you can go to wordsandwhiskey.show. And you can find our schedule, our top shelf where we supposedly post images and recipes for all of our cocktails. And that has gone unupdated way too long. And I keep saying that I am going to do that and I haven't. And this is my one responsibility kick in the pants to go fucking do that, PJ. So I'll, I'll, somebody shout at PJ in the comments. Yeah, I'll, I'll update. I that. get shouted a lot in the comments, but somebody yell at PJ this one time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I miss the fire often. So yeah, cool. Other than that, as mentioned, shout at us in the comments. Uh, make sure to leave a review of the show. Ideally, we would love a five star review of the show. But if you have genuine complaints, make sure that you send them directly to. Howlerpond at gmail.com because they will respond to you negatively immediately when you send them those complaints. 
But actually, if you want to send anything, my name is Crossland. PJ is PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey. So please leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, we will come for you and torture you into saying our names repeatedly in front of a court of law. It's not fun. By whatever means necessary. Crossland's done it to me before. It's not fun. See you next week for more questions. Bye.